The committee will come to order. I want to welcome everyone and thank you for joining us with this very critical, important, and urgent hearing. It's very important that we take stock of where we are at this point in terms of making sure that we keep our food supply chain safe and secure and moving our goods, our food products, our equipment that our farmers need to really make sure that we are responding to this very critical need. We have a distinguished panel, and I'm so delighted with the great work that my staff has done in assembling this hearing. This is very important. After a brief opening remarks, members will receive testimony from our witnesses today, and then our hearing will be open to questions. Members will be recognized in order of seniority, alternating between majority and minority members, and in order of arrival for those members who have joined after the hearing was called to order. And as always, when you are recognized, please, please make sure you are um, mooted when you're not speaking, and when you're speaking, you can unmute. And um, I want to start with my own <clears throat> opening statement here. Um, I really, really wanted to hurry up and have this hearing so that we will be able to relay to the American um, community that our food supply at this point is secure. We do not have, at this point, a shortage of food. And the purpose of this hearing is to make sure, as the challenges continue to unveil with the pandemic, which is causing so much of this problem, we hope it can go away quickly. We hoped that a year ago, but it's here. We don't know how much longer it will be here, but we cannot wait to be able to look this day at the immediate challenges that face us in order to keep our food supply plentiful and secure. Today's hearing is a very important and widespread look at our supply chain issues. We wanna look at the logistics involved with ensuring that our grocery store shelves, our convenience store shelves, all of the retail elements where our people get their food products are well stocked. And uh, we wanna make sure that we in Congress are doing what we need to do to make sure that that stays constant. 
to start um, our supply chain challenges are yet our food is supplies safe so far, but we do have some challenges that are widespread and unprecedented. And they're not just limited to food and agriculture. They are global. We are a global force. We have the world's greatest agriculture system, and it spans the world. So whatever happens in whichever part of the world that is not good, it impacts us. It impacts our farmers. It impacts our grocery stores, all of that. And we want to make sure that we in Congress and this committee get to the bottom of what some of the serious immediate challenges are. And I want to commend several of our House Agriculture Subcommittees who have held hearings on this, including the beef supply chain, small and local supply chains, and we also have had a meeting with the Federal Maritime Commission to discuss shipping issues and possible remedies. And it is also I do not want to understate that these complex disruptions are causing economic hardships, delays, limited products, choices, increased costs of production, and most notably, for much, much of our American people, the prices have zoomed. So we are caught in the middle here. And we are committed to doing our part in Congress. And we in the House Agriculture Committee will shine a light on these issues and move forward. I also want to bring attention to while we are sailing fairly smoothly in terms of no disruptions in our supply chain, we do have a serious immediate challenge. And it's a challenge that we have got to address. And it is this. We need right now 15,000 more commercial truck drivers. If there is an Achilles heel in our challenge, it rests with this huge vacancies in our truck drivers, commercial truck drivers. Let me tell you why. Right now, according to our Food Service Distribution Association, they're the ones that brought this to my attention, and I need to share it with this committee because we're going to have to do something about this. Right now, we are 15,000 commercial drivers short, and we have got to move forthrightly to respond to that. But more than that, and here is the real uh, 
element of this Archelio. According to not just the uh, Food Service Distribution Association, but our Transportation Department and others, here is the problem. 90% of our commercial truck drivers don't last one year. And so we've got before us a major recruitment program and a retention program. And I have moved on this in our committee. And we are going to call upon and work with as our agriculture committee and work with our labor committee and education committee and work with our transportation committee. And I've asked my staff to begin to reach out. I believe strongly, ladies and gentlemen, that if we do not address this immediate concern of getting 15,000 more truck drivers, and if we do not especially address the question and the issue, why are 90% of our commercial truck drivers not lasting a year? That doubles the impact of this challenge. It's sort of like trying to fill the bucket up and we can put all the water in it, but it's meaningless if we don't close the holes at the bottom of the pail. And so this is why I wanted to let you know that this Agriculture Committee is not waiting one second on that. We're already moving to put this in, uh, in action, and we're calling upon the uh, impacted uh, committees, transportation, agriculture, and labor and education to try to see what we can do. And then pull in the labor department, the transportation department, the secretary, and of course our secretary, Tom Vilsack. Now, some of this is going on already. And I wanna give President um, Biden some credit here, folks. He gets a lot of blame but he has moved on this already. He, with his 24-7 plan, that has opened up a way for us to get what truck drivers we have on the road. They can travel weekends, they can travel nights now, 24 hours, seven days a week. But if we don't have the truck drivers, what good is that? So this is why we have got to move urgently and put together a major recruitment and retention program for commercial truck drivers. And now I just wanna also uh, thank uh, our Secretary of Agriculture who has moved on this in terms of putting money already out there. I think it's uh, about uh, $10 billion that he is already putting into action in terms of making sure that the agriculture 
uh, department is ready right now to assist with this in providing emergency funds to make sure we maintain. But all I say is that we've got a, a tremendous challenge here. We can't shy from it. And I want to conclude my opening remarks by saying that we are a great nation. And we have gone through some major challenges. At this point, this is our Paul Revere moment. We've got to sound, sound the alarm on this, on this uh, weakness that we have right now of needing 15,000. This is what they're saying. We need 15,000 truck drivers right this moment. This will maintain where we are. And then we need to really work with the nitty gritty of it, of retention. It is, I was just shocked when they informed me that 90% right now of our truck drivers don't last a year. So this is a serious problem. We're moving forward. And uh, I just appreciate everybody here today. And I wanted to just sound the alarm. But also now, we must have a Franklin Delano Roosevelt moment. When they had the Depression during the 30s, we responded. And we did things we did not even do before, didn't know how to do. And as a result of going through that, we put things in place as a result of depression that is lasting and helping us right to this day. This is our shining moment, committee. Let us rise to the occasion and let us address this real tough issue of getting more commercial truck drivers and retaining them. And with that, I uh, will yield to our ranking member for his remarks. Well, Chairman, thank you very much. And uh, I agree with you. We need to uh, sound the alarm because I, I actually think we're in a crisis uh, when I look at all aspects of this um, and things that were perhaps avoidable and things, most importantly, things that, that we can address with the right action. So I'm looking forward. We got a talented group of witnesses today that uh, in the panel that's come forward to, to share their perspective. I'm, Really interested uh, to hear. We uh, we really do need a, a root cause analysis of all the things that have contributed. I've I've worked on uh, uh, my role as a senior member in education and labor and a leader on career and technical education. I've I've worked on that, the CDL drivers for many years, and, and we actually have tools out there to help people get trained. It's so it's not a matter of not having resources there dedicated. Um, uh, you know this this uh, hearing. Uh, today is uh, is very important, long overdue, uh, hearing to review the current strains within the supply chain and their impact on American agriculture. And I see this as the first of what I hope will be many public conversations on this topic by our committee. We have a talented panel today, but this this is it impacting every American family. And we have a lot of key stakeholders that, you know, we weren't able to fit into uh, uh, onto the panel today. So I would certainly encourage, a, a, uh, and this is a crisis, I, I would encourage that we uh, 
do a series of these hearings. Um, I point to just an article yesterday in uh, uh, in one of my newspapers, probably one of my largest newspapers, the the, the uh, Oil City Derrick, that talked about the Cranberry Area School District. This normally receives from their food distribution 100 cases of food. That's what it takes to provide something I think that we somewhat take for granted: uh, school lunches, and 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 they're getting 50. Um, and uh, and they're and the the the, the wonderful uh, men and women that are working in food services at that school district are trying to do their best to be creative with how they deliver the nutrition that they need to do uh, under those uh, school lunches or breakfasts uh, that they that that uh, that are the kids uh, need to have. And that's a crisis when you when you have school districts that have their supplies cut in half. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing about workforce issues, uh, uh, looking forward to hearing. Um, I think there's an entire side of this that the Biden administration has ignored in terms of disruption of food supply. And that's that is the fact that uh, our, our farmers who rely on domestic exports, we have a lot of ship, a tremendous amount. Uh, probably the majority of shipping containers going back overseas empty. And, and we have these commodities that, that are so important to our rural communities and our farmers and ranchers that are sitting there ready to, ready to go. We don't need truck drivers for that. We, you know, we need, I don't know what we need. We need some type of change, uh, to where these containers are not allowed to go back overseas empty. We, we need flexibility and regulation implementation. We need, uh, a, a transition, a pivot from the Biden energy policy um, that has reduced the amount of natural gas production. Uh, and I'm not about talking specifically about that as an energy source as the derivatives that get used to manufacture plastics. Um, because for every food supply, we need packaging uh, and plastics are, are an important part of that. So there's a lot that I'm looking to, looking forward, hopefully, to hear about today. As the United States emerges from the pandemic, we're, we are facing a new combination of challenges and consequences, including rapidly rising inflation, skyrocketing energy costs, and a shortage of available goods and labor. Now, as we approach the holidays, these issues are on the minds of every American. In addition to everyday needs, meals, Gifts and celebrations will look wildly different this year as families face an onslaught of, of high prices, limited stock, and minimal customer service. Now, the Biden administration would lead you to believe that these are, quote, high-class problems, end quote. It's kind of a flippant statement, and I believe that represents just how out of touch this administration is with Main Street. Um, Main Street and farm lanes, let me put it that way, and the everyday people who see their hard-earned dollars stretched thinner every day. Mr. Chairman, I'd, I would like would have liked to see the administration participating in today's hearing uh, because whatever solutions that we can identify, we need them to be able to, to execute or to administer. That's what the executive branch is supposed to do. And while I appreciate the peril each of our witnesses is working through, I think it's necessary to hear from one of the main culprits, um, and too many instances, uh, the White House uses industry as a scapegoat rather than partnering with them to solve problems. And while we can pull other factors like natural disasters, much of what we will hear about today is is how uh, feckless liberal policies under consideration by this administration are compounding instead of mitigating this crisis. Uh, this administration has single-handedly perpetuated a fear of high taxes, higher taxes, contemplated uh, regulations without any type of flexibility um, uh, that will limit crop protection tools and, and land use, uh, reduce our nation's energy dependence, and uh, 
that reverted to uh, divisive and unreasonable vaccine mandates and challenged regulations in our transportation sector. And to make matters worse, as we sit here, trillions more in reckless spending uh, or reckless spending are being ready behind closed doors. Funding that will only add fuel to the fire of skyrocketing inflation and economic uncertainty. More so, and let me be very clear, this is a ruinous crisis for our farmers and ranchers who buy retail, sell wholesale, and pay shipping each way. Increased input costs are hampering producers' abilities to provide an affordable food and fiber supply. That insult to injury, transportation shipping delays, as you reflected on, have had serious consequences on their ability to export products, avoid being filled by foreign competitors. Now, I can only hope that this excellent panel will shed some light on a path out of this mess. We're, we're looking for solutions. That's what we do in the Agriculture Committee. And I hope this committee considers inviting the administration to testify about this very issue as well. I, I look forward to working with you, Mr. Chairman, to bring forth solutions, many of which we'll hear about today. And I want to thank the expert witnesses who have joined us today on, on very short notice and the numerous associations, organizations, and businesses who have provided additional testimony in advance of the hearing. With that, Mr. Chairman, thank you, and I yield back. Thank you, rank, uh, thank you, Ranking Member. And now the Chair would request that other members submit their opening statements for the record so witnesses may begin their testimony have ample time and to ensure that they do indeed have ample time to uh, answer our questions and be able to share uh, their knowledge uh, with us. And now it's my great pleasure um, to uh, welcome our distinguished panel of witnesses. First of all, thank you very much for coming and uh, preparing and sharing with us your information. Our very first witness is Mr. John Schwalls. Mr. Schwalls is the executive officer of Southern Valley Fruit and Vegetable uh, Incorporated from the great state of Georgia. Uh, Southern Valley is a produce growing, packing, and shipping facility. And Mr. Schwanz is testifying on behalf of the Georgia Fruit and Vegetables Grocers Association. Welcome. Our next witness is Mr. Ed Senko, who is the Director of Purchasing for uh, Schwabels Baking Company, based in Youngstown, Ohio. He is testifying on behalf of the American Baking Association. And our third witness today is Mr. Craig Ferrara, who is president and chief executive officer of the National Grocers Association and NGA. NGA represents America's 21,000 independent community grocers and the wholesalers that service them. Uh, and uh, now to introduce our fourth witness today, I am pleased to yield to our distinguished chairman of our Livestock and Foreign Agriculture Subcommittee, our colleague from California, Mr. Costa. 
Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. And uh, this is a very important and serious hearing that we are having, and it's timely, and I thank you for that. Um, and, and I know you're in a good mood this morning because the Braves did bring it home last night. So you've got yes, a smile sir. on your face. Uh, this next gentleman, if you like, if you like pizza, uh, you're going to like uh, my my friend Mike Durkin uh, from Laprino Foods. They are the largest producer of mozzarella cheese uh, in the nation, which means the world. Uh, but they also produce uh, a lot of other uh, important proteins and lactose and dairy ingredients that are critical to our food supply chain. And uh, Mr. Um, Durkin's experience uh, in other leading roles uh, puts him in a good position to testify this morning, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, uh, of the critical uh, challenges and the crisis that we're facing in our supply chain. We look forward to hearing his testimony as well as the other witnesses. Thank you, Mr. Costa. Now our fifth witness is Mr. John Sampson, Vice President of Conference is an executive director of Agriculture Food Transporters Conference, American Trucking Association. The American Trucking Association represents every sector of the trucking industry, including members who work in the food supply chain. What a distinguished panel that we have. And now, finally, to introduce our sixth witness, I am pleased to yield to our colleague, the distinguished gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Rodney Davis. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And um, I have to say, the winning Braves manager comes from Illinois' 13th district. Brian Snitker grew up in Macon, Illinois, and as a almost lifelong Braves fan, I'm right with you on the championship, Mr. Oh, Chair. man, thank you. What uh, a night, what a World Series. It was a great night, great night. Uh, and uh, I do want to say thank you to my good friend Rod Wells. Uh, he is the chief supply chain officer at Growmark, Inc., and he's here on behalf of the Agriculture Retailers Association. Growmark employs and serves an incredible number of constituents that I represent in my ag-centric district in Illinois. But for all of you on this committee who know me, uh, you may feel very sorry for Mr. Wells because he was my neighbor when I moved to Illinois back in 1977. So he had to put up with me on a very personal basis, even when he went to uh, he and his family moved halfway across the state to only Illinois. I used to spend a lot of holidays and New Year's down with he and his family. But I couldn't ask for a better witness to talk about the issues affecting central Illinois and southwestern Illinois and my constituents and this great nation, for that matter, when it comes to the supply chain. Welcome, Rod. And you're lucky I didn't give away any secrets. <laughs> I yield back. Thank you, uh, Congressman Davis. I appreciate that. Um, and I am so pleased to have this distinguished panel of witness before us. And uh, each of you will have five minutes. The timer will be visible to you on your screen and will count down to zero, at which point your time has expired. So why don't we get right into it? Mr. Schwals, you will be first. Please begin when you are ready. Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, members of the committee, thank you for your invitation to participate in today's hearing. 
My name is John Swalls. I'm the executive officer at Southern Valley in Norman Park, Georgia. I'm here today on behalf of the Georgia Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association. Southern Valley is a fully integrated year-round growing, packing, and shipping operations of fruits and vegetables. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to the committee today and share how the pandemic has created unprecedented challenges to our supply chain, placed in the produce industry in a crisis. When the pandemic began in March of 2020, Southern Valley did as many farming operations. We quickly implemented procedures to protect our workers and consumers by mitigating any potential exposure to the virus. Even though nearly half of our market share had disappeared due to closure of restaurants, schools, cafeterias, our spring crop had already been planted at that time. So we had no choice but to harvest that crop while also protecting the health and the safety of our employees. For the first six months of the pandemic, our calls for COVID-19 prevention and employee health and safety were over $120,000. We survived the 2020 and first half of 2021, but it has certainly not been without significant increase to input and cost. Recurring monthly cost of $16,000 for COVID prevention continue today. These costs include our health task force, which is led by a local physician, additional security measures, PPE, quarantine housing, and related supplies. We've made substantial adjustments in our purchasing model to help alleviate costs with price forecasting. Southern Valley has contracted our year's supply of crop protection products, fertilizers, and fuel for farm operations during the first quarter of the year. Farming operations are facing not only increased field input costs, but also a shortage of supply of many inputs. And suppliers can no longer guarantee our pricing due to the shortages of shipping delays and production. The industry has seen unprecedented increases over the past 12 months for production costs. Specific cost increases that we've seen year to date are fertilizers, which are up 35%, crop protection products, 25%, fuel 48%, and plastic and drip tape 35%. We've also had significant increases in packing costs. Corrugated boxes up 17%, packing supplies 30%, pallets 75%, and refrigerant 200%. And our outbound freight to customers is up 40%. We are in a supply chain crisis. The U.S. ports we rely on are backed up and products needed for farming, such as tractor tires and computer chips, are waiting to be unloaded. There are not enough drivers, warehouses, chassis, and shipping containers to keep the product moving to their intended customer, which in this case is the American farmer. Some examples of previously crop protection products could be sourced the same or next day. Now that's seven to 10 days. That's very important because diseases and fungus are time sensitive. Even a few days delay can have a significant impact on crop yield and or total crop loss. Fertilizers that could previously be sourced within a week were waiting three to four weeks now. And things like tractor tires that could be sourced the same day were not even being given a delivery date. In the early days of the pandemic, the federal and state governments took swift action to invest in the food, in the food systems and to work together to keep supply chains moving. The situation we now face echoes some of the challenges we faced in the spring of 2020. Finally, Georgia lacks a processing facility for produce. Currently, there's no opportunity to market produce that is cosmetically flawed. 
The addition of processing facility would allow products that are currently tossed to be sold into one of four categories, fresh cut, fresh prepared, fresh frozen, or frozen prepared. A facility like this would make great strides in reducing food waste as well as adding shelf life to these fruits and vegetables. In times when producers are spending more to grow their product, a processing facility would incentivize growers to stay in farming to better balance out the additional cost incurred throughout the pandemic and supply chain crisis and create food safety and stability. Thank you for allowing me to participate today. I look forward to the continued discussion and I'll be able to answer any questions you may have today or follow up after the period. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Charles. And now we will recognize Mr. Senko. Please begin when you are ready. Good morning, Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and the members of the, Ohio, the House Agriculture Committee. Thank you for holding this hearing and for the opportunity to testify today for the unique supply chain challenges that face the baking industry. My name is Ed Senko, and I'm the Director of Purchasing for Swabel's Baking Company. Schwebel's Bake Company has been a household name in Youngstown, Ohio since 1906, a company founded by Dora Schwebel and family-owned since its inception. Currently, Schwebel's has a workforce of 800 employees and two bakeries with a dedicated delivery team. Schwebel's product lines include hearth breads, traditional white bread and buns, variety bread spanning wheat and breakfast breads. I'm testifying today on behalf of the American Bakers Association, of which Schwebel's is an active member who represents 300 companies and 1,600 plus facilities. Today, I will provide an overview of the multifaceted supply chain disruptions that the baking industry is currently facing and what we'll be facing in the future. The first issue I'd like to discuss is the workforce shortage in the baking industry. Schwebel's Baking Company has not been immune to the workforce shortage. We've experienced high levels of turnover due to the need of 24-7 production runs to provide a fresh quality product to our customers. The shortage of workers in our sector means we do not have enough workers for our shifts. We are forced to shut down production lines. The result in, this results in fewer products being delivered to retail stores and food services, including restaurants and institutions. Additionally, many wholesale bakers provide baked goods for federal feeding programs, including the school breakfast and lunch programs, SNAP and WIC. The baking industry is also for, facing a shortage of drivers. The baking industry has one of the largest trucking fleets in the United States and is reliant upon drivers to transport our products to the end user. Further, these workforce challenges have significantly impacted our suppliers. ABA has a real concern over President Biden's COVID-19 action plan that will make this workforce tighter due to the fact that they will have to be vaccinated. The banking industry does support President's goal of getting Americans vaccinated, but we will have real concerns about the rulemaking and the negative impact about the fragile workforce. We also worry about the access to COVID-19 rapid tests. Baking industry uses a variety of transportation modes, including ports, rails, roads, and to move supplies to and from the bakery. The industry is relying on the U.S. ports to move the freight. To re These recent bottlenecks have negatively impacted the smooth flow of trade for both ingredient suppliers and exports of the American products. Failure to alleviate these will lead to unusable products due to short shelf lives on some ingredients. Successful baking operations require sourcing of unique combination of inputs, including commodities, specialty ingredients, packaging, and baking equipment to keep producing products. 
Reliable and consistent procurement of supplies under normal circumstances is a complex, difficult task, but when supply chains are unpredictable or slowed, bakeries become highly vulnerable. Depending on the baked goods produced, companies will need a wide array of inputs, flour, oil, sugar, spices, gluten, etc. Recently, we have seen a supply shortage of critically important ingredients such as gluten, emulsifiers, soybean oil, and packaging. Upcoming issues are being projected for honey, sesame seeds, and durum flour, which is a main part of the school lunch programs. The demand for soybean oil and other vegetable oils has exceeded the current domestic supply. There are several factors influencing the edible oil supply availability. The 2020 drought, lower than expected projected plantings in 2021, and President Biden's EPA's renewable biodiesel program. This means for some food companies, edible oil will literally not be available at any price due to the diversion of the edible oil to the biodiesel industry. Some bakers can order ingredients and supplies ahead of their normal ordering schedule to ensure delivery of products to customers. Unfortunately, this comes at a substantial cost to the manufacturer as it takes significant planning, resources, and additional space, as well as carrying costs. ABA members are reporting that between because of the lack of the certain ingredients, they will no longer be able to manufacture 10 to 15% of their product line. If the United States is unable to alleviate the pressure around the critical baking ingredients, bakers could anticipate less products on store shelves and in food services, as well as the dependent on the USDA feeding programs. Bakers will have to make tough decisions, and this is going to impact American families. The baking industry is facing numerous challenges, workforce, transportation, supply procurement, and regulatory requirements, all of which threaten to disrupt the fragile supply chain. Thank you for the opportunity to testify. Thank you very much. And now, Mr. Ferrara, please begin when you're ready. Uh, good morning, Mr. Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, uh, and members of the House Agriculture Committee. It's an honor to have the opportunity to testify before you today to provide the perspective of the independent grocer on America's current food supply chain challenges. My name is Greg Ferreira, President and CEO of the National Grocers Association. NGA is the voice in Washington for America's 21,000 independent community grocers and the wholesalers that service them. Independent community grocers account for 33% of all grocery sales, exceeding $250 billion and one, one, more than 1 million American jobs. We are inherently tied to the strength and vitality of the markets we serve at the heart of the local communities and the U.S. economy. Independents provide jobs and boost local tax revenues while bringing choice, convenience, and value to hardworking Americans. We serve as a critical market for agriculture products for independent small-scale farmers as independents differentiate themselves from their competition by sourcing locally. Without doubt, the last 18 months has been the most challenging time in grocery than anyone in our industry can remember. And the COVID pandemic has made the grocery supply chain literally a kitchen table issue for millions of Americans. Since the beginning of the pandemic, we have experienced the same unprecedented levels of consumer demand. While the early days of the pandemic were marred by panic buying and acute shortages of must-have consumer products, this new phase of the global supply chain crunch presents a brand new set of challenges. The good news is that American consumers no longer have to confront the stark images that marked the beginning of the pandemic of empty grocery shelves and hour-long lines at checkout. America's food supply chain from farmers to manufacturers, wholesalers to retailers, demonstrated its resilience and flexibility by catching up with demand in most grocery categories. 
The greatest risk we face in the market is not supply chain challenges under discussion today, but rather the panic buying mindset of, is what poses the greatest risk to the availability of food and the ability of grocers to keep the shelves fully stocked. As industry and government leaders, we must be responsible spokespeople for the food system and reassure American public that there is plenty of food to go around. With that being said, the global pandemic has changed the economy and the food supply chain is adjusting to deal with the new challenges presented by the new economic order. From the independent grocery perspective, there are three central factors contributing most significantly to the current supply chain crunch. First, labor availability. A common denominator from every witness at this uh, is that the lack of labor availability is impacting all of us. People have left the workforce, perhaps for good. Others left temporarily and still have not come back. More Americans are working from home, leading to a culture shift in how consumers shop and what they purchase. The food industry continues to adapt to a shifting marketplace, but the bottom line is we must have access to a stable workforce in order to adequately meet the demands of American consumers. Despite the record wage growth and endless opportunities, we still face a major labor shortage. Number two, shortcomings in America's transportation infrastructure capacity is driving supply bottlenecks and delays. Specifically, the trucking industry faces an acute shortage of truck drivers, a critical cog in the supply chain required to move product along each step in the food production cycle. America is still short by more than 100,000 truck drivers, and the problem is only getting worse. The federal government must take actions to increase transportation efficiency and capacity while maintaining current regulatory flexibilities, such as the hours of service waivers, as we see no let up in demand. Finally, number three, power buyer and supply chain concentration. The pandemic has exposed a growing problem in the food and agriculture sector. Market concentration has led to uneven supply. The largest retail power buyers use their immense economic power to pressure suppliers into prioritizing their shipments over other retail customers while extracting concessions on wholesale pricing. As a result, independent grocers have lost access to both popular products and promotional pricing, often putting them at a disadvantage when competing with their largest rivals. Consumers that live in rural or low-income food insecure areas that are typically served by independents are disproportionately impacted and must travel longer distances to find products in need at more crowded retailers. Although the current crisis exasperated economic discrimination in the grocery sector, this phenomenon is not confined to the pandemic. For decades, independent grocers have not had equal access to pricing, promotions, and packing details, deals that are provided to the largest firms. And during this time, independent grocers have lost ground in many rural and urban areas where food deserts now exist, in large part to competitive disadvantages in the marketplace that often favor the biggest chains in dollar stores. To fix our supply chain, NGA believes we must fix the competitive free market and enforce antitrust laws that are already in the books. That is why NGA, along with farmers and business groups and the Main Street Competition Coalition, is calling on Congress to revive antitrust enforcement of existing laws that level the playing field like the Robinson-Patman Act. Although some, we expect some inconveniences in product availability to uh, be present in the near future, I have no doubt that American ingenuity and the dedication of the patriotic individuals that comprise our food sector will prevail over the headwinds that we face in the marketplace. It will take time to adjust to the new economic reality, but targeted interventions from our federal policymakers will help us get back on the right track even quicker. With that, I'm happy to take your questions. Thank you. Mr. Durkin, please begin when you're ready. Good morning. Good morning, Chairman Scott. Good morning. Good morning, Chairman Scott, uh, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the House Committee on Agriculture. My name is Mike Durkin. I'm the President and CEO of Laprino Foods Company, and I'm here to testify on behalf of the dairy industry and our company. Laprino Foods is a family-owned and privately held company headquarters in Denver, Colorado, with 4,500 employees and nine plants across states of California, Colorado, New Mexico, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and New York. 
Caprino is the single largest purchaser of milk in the United States and actually supporting over 1,000 farms of dairy farms. We're the world's largest producer of mozzarella cheese and a leading supplier of dairy nutrition products, including lactose and whey protein. The supply chain challenges have significantly impacted our business, and we don't expect them to uh, ease anytime soon. I'm here to talk about a critical component of this disruption that has not received a lot of attention lately, and that's exports. America cannot ignore the impact the crisis is having on U.S. exports. Mr. Chairman, to use your words, I'm here to sound the alarm on the export crisis we're experiencing. Exports are critical to the overall financial health of the entire United States agricultural sector, and in our case, the U.S. dairy industry. Leprino exports 26% of our milk equivalent volume to over 55 countries, well above the industry average of 16%. I'm here to share our story and call on this, this body to help with solutions across all aspects of the supply chain, including exports, because this is a severe threat to the U.S. agriculture industry. Freight rates from the Asia and the U.S. West Coast are currently 15 times higher than freight rates from the U.S. to Asia, creating a clear financial incentive for ships to depart empty, with no U.S. goods on board versus waiting to be loaded. As a result, shipping companies are refusing to load U.S. agricultural exports, and over 70% of the containers are returning to Asia empty. In September, volume from the California ports was just three-quarters of the normal export volume. This works for carriers. We've been told it's more cost-effective to skip the Port of Oakland, one of our primary export ports, than to accept exports. U.S. agricultural exporters, however, are in a crisis. For Leprino, over 99% of our 2021 ocean shipments have been canceled or rebooked to a later date at least once, and in some cases up to 10 times or more. Over 100 bookings this year have been canceled or rebooked 17 times. This equates to a five-month delay for our customers who depend on our products, including infant formula companies around the world that's necessary to feed millions of babies across the world. We have been forced to hold loaded containers in carrier yards using equipment already in short supply. These delays cannot, uh, these delays not only put our customers at risk, but we have also experienced unprecedented increases in freight and storage and demurrage fees. One freight bill of $5,500 was, was dwarfed by the detention and demurrage fees of over $20,000. In total, our freight and storage costs have spiked $25 million in 2021, and we expect it to increase another $25 million in 2022. This export crisis is well, uh, is well result in, may result in irreparable harm to the American agriculture as customers around the world are questioning the U.S. dairy industry's reliability as a supplier. For example, one of our largest customers have incurred over half a million dollars in air freight to get the product to what they need, and they also informed us recently that they will now source the, their product from Europe. These relationships took years and even decades to develop, and they will not be quickly or easily regained. The U.S. dairy industry cannot stay competitive uh, with expensive and unreliable freight costs. And, in, and as this cascades through the entire supply chain, the loss of foreign sales pushes more product into the U.S. market, which pressures wholesale prices and ultimately farm, farm milk prices. There is no doubt this is contributing to the extended period of weak dairy, uh, weak dairy farm margins. In response, the dairy herd is now contracting at its fastest rate since 2009. 
The Bipartisan Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 2021 begins to address the problem. This bill will prohibit the opportunistic uh, carrier practice of sailing to Asia empty when the U.S. agriculture exports await shipment. It has bipartisan and co-sponsorship, co which is growing and should be passed and signed into law. The bill is a great start, but uh, more is needed. For example, major ports across the world operated 24-7, and only recently did they begin to do so temporarily. Given the labor shortage and required training, however, this action is unlikely to provide any relief for at least 6 to 12 months. In addition to prohibiting foreign carriers from leaving the U.S. empty, the administration and Congress must work together to provide our major ports and port workers with the infrastructure and environment to operate and meet demand. Thank you for the opportunity to share the exporter perspective. I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Mr. Durkin. And now, Mr. Sampson, you are recognized when you are ready. Good morning. Thank you, uh, Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, members of the committee. To be honest, I was very excited to be able to come out and, and uh, join this hearing. And then after hearing both the uh, chairman and the ranking members opening statements, hearing the passion of, of wanting to actually go in and fix this, talking about crisis, but there's also opportunity out there. And so, uh, you know, we're engaged, we're excited to be here, but to, to, to see the committee uh, jump into this, to see the agriculture side really uh, take away from the news cycle of, of we're going to be short Christmas trees and Christmas presents and actually look at our nation's food, uh, feel uh, fiber and feed and, and, and look at that as this is the real important piece of the supply chain that we need to, that we need to fix. And so uh, the fact that you're raising that right now is extraordinarily important and we're extraordinarily uh, excited to be part of the process. Uh, I'm proud to testify on behalf of ATA's uh, Agriculture and Food Transporters Conference, the specialty advocacy arm within the American Trucking Associations dealing with uh, those that are hauling our food and agriculture products. Uh, ATA members play a critically important role in our food supply chain. Uh, ATA is an 80-year-old federation and the uh, uh, largest national trade, associ trade association uh, representing the trucking industry with uh, affiliates in all 50 states. And so we have a piece, an, an arm in each state, and work closely with our state trucking associations. Our membership encompasses over 34,000 motor carriers and suppliers uh, directly uh, and through affiliated organizations. Importantly for uh, the purposes today of today's hearing, ATA members serve agriculture producers, agriculture and food processors, food distributors, restaurants, uh, many of my, uh, my fellow panelists here. Uh, more than 80% of U.S. commodities rely exclusively on trucking uh, to meet their freight transportation needs. Overall, trucking moves 72.5% of the nation's freight tonnage annually. In March 2020, I think it's important to go back and look quickly at the supply chain breakdown that we saw during the COVID pandemic, understanding that we face a separate supply chain uh, concern uh, right now. But we did uh, in March 2020, as schools and restaurants began to shutter uh, at the outset of the pandemic, our food supply chains broke down. The markets disappeared overnight, restaurants closed, schools closed, and so we work closely within the supply chain, within industry, uh, as well as USDA and, and FDA to figure out how we can come together, communicate, 
figure out alternative marketplaces to really get everybody back on track. Uh, we saw and everybody witnessed the slaughtering of, of, of chickens, putting uh, those into the landfill, milk being dumped, beans being tilled back into the soil, stuff that we did not like to see from, from, from a U.S. food supply chain, uh, that food waste. And so we worked closely to try to limit that. Communications uh, were a big piece of that. You can see that in the written testimony, as well as looking at any sort of technology uh, to really uh, allow us to, to contact and, and tap into other marketplaces. And as we saw similar shutdowns in the fall winter of 2020, we started to see some of that food waste minimized. And so we believe that through the communication, we were able to, uh, to, to see some positive impact out of that. Uh, in my full written testimony, we touch on five separate uh, key issues for motor carriers in the food supply chain. Of course, as we're communicating right now with the bipartisan infrastructure, the investment uh, congestion caused by decaying infrastructure is definitely uh, a top focus within ATA. Workforce development, I know that's top of mind for many people. The labor shortages uh, right now, and, and Chairman, you had mentioned the driver shortage. I believe our economist looks at it, uh, the number of, of 80,000 short after the pandemic. And so, you know, these, these retention issues, bringing on new drivers, attracting new drivers has been a, a, an extraordinarily difficult task and something that we have been fully involved and focused on and hope to have some positive uh, uh, results within the next couple of years. Uh, vaccine mandate consequences, as we know, there's a lot of companies out there that are hesitant, especially when it comes to the trucking side within the supply chain. And so we've been focusing and working with our companies on, on the vaccine mandate as well. Uh, flexibility and cooperation in commercial relationships. This is something, of course, within that initial shutdown of COVID, we really needed to make sure that our relationships within the industry supply chain were strong. And this, I believe, is something that we're going to be able to point towards as we go into these new uh, food supply chain issues uh, that we're currently witnessing. And lastly, and I know it's going to be talked about uh, significantly during this hearing, but the port productivity issues that we're facing. Everybody's well aware of them, and we're uh, trying from a carrier angle to work through the supply chain issues and, and come out with something that uh, is, is going to be workable for everyone. So with that, Chairman, I, I'd like to open it up to any questions. Yeah, thank you, uh, Mr. Sam uh, Sampson. And now I recognize Mr. Wells. Please begin when you are ready. Thank you. Good morning, Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and distinguished members of the House Committee on Agriculture. Thank you for allowing me to testify today regarding the immediate challenges to our nation's food supply chain. My name is Rod Wells, and I serve as the Chief Supply Chain Officer of Growmark Incorporated, headquartered in Bloomington, Illinois. Growmark is a North American ag cooperative owned by local member companies and farmers and provides your grain supplies, farm supplies and grain marketing services. I also appear before you today on behalf of the Agricultural Retailers Association as the chairman of the ARA Board of Directors. ARA represents agricultural retailers who supply farmers and ranchers with crop inputs, feed, equipment, technology and services that help to successfully manage their operations. The agriculture industry is experiencing supply chain disruptions. We must act on both short-term and long-term solutions and utilize a multi-pronged approach to mitigate these disruptions. 
the importance of proving our infrastructure, crop input production, energy availability, access to labor, and regulations that work for rural America is very clear now. Rural America's transportation infrastructure needs improvement. Rural America contains many of the country's natural resources and is the primary producer of food, fiber, and energy. Roads, bridges, highways, and waterways provide the first and last links in the supply chain from farm to market for all citizens in our country. We compete in a global marketplace and our infrastructure must be world-class and efficient. In short, ensuring an economically strong supply chain infrastructure is critical to the health of the U.S. economy. Waterways, ports on our coasts, and freight railroads are safe and effective means of transporting commodities. Freight railroads need to make track improvements to be in the best position to deliver consistent, dependable service while also providing competitive rail rates to shippers. Our waterways need new 1,200-foot locks, and more ports need to be capable of offloading containers. Our growing supply chain challenges pinpoint an immediate need for waterway, port, and rail track upgrades to connect ag-retailers and their customers to domestic and international markets. Trucking is vital to agriculture, and we depend on just-in-time delivery of farm supplies and services to our customers. Our country is experiencing a growing driver shortage and higher shipping costs. 48 states currently allow drivers to obtain a commercial driver's license at 18. However, they are prohibited from driving in interstate commerce until they are 21. The Drive Safe Act legislation we support would create a two-step apprenticeship program to allow these younger drivers to safely enter the industry. Hours of service regulation should be, allow more flexibility for drivers working within the food supply production system, along with streamlining electronic logging device requirements that can be a burden for small trucking companies. Planning for the 2022 growing season is already underway. Seed and crop protection products all rely on the supply chain being discussed today. We feel part of improving the supply chain involves the timely and science-based regulatory approval process for biotechnology and crop protection products. The Ag Retailers Association supports biotechnology and crop protection products being assessed within the traditional US EPA science and risk-based regulatory process. American farmers and ranchers become more sustainable and strengthen the food supply system long-term with science-based advancements. Reliable, diverse, and cost-effective energy sources are essential for agricultural production and supply chain system. Agricultural producers produce, produce renewable fuels that include ethanol, biodiesel, solar, wind, and gas from digesters. But until renewable energy can meet all demand, traditional domestic energy sources must be available. The census shows rural America continues to struggle to grow its population while the demand for qualified workers increases. The current H-2A Ag Guest Worker Visa Program is broken and does not work for all of agriculture. We desire an H-2A program that is simpler and more flexible. The Agri-Tillers Association urges Congress to continue to explore solutions that improve the supply chain and also promote pro-growth economic policies. As a farm supply retailer, I am confident that acting on these priorities will help farmers improve production and contribute to growing the economy while supplying the food, fuel, and fiber that our citizens need. Thank you for your commitment to and support of American agriculture, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Wells, and I want to thank each of you 
for your very informative uh, testimonies. And, um, and I just appreciate your sense of urgency and understanding of what we're doing. Our job here today is to keep our food supply chain operative and functioning at the level that uh, we really, really need. And so let me begin the questions. I will tell you this. I am very, very worried. I'm worried that we could possibly have a delay in our, a major delay in our food supply chain if we do not address this piercing issue of a need for commercial truck drivers. It is an extraordinary profession, and we are now pulling the covers off all of that to really, uh, I have magnified my deep appreciation for truck drivers. They hold the key right now as to whether or not we will have a food supply challenge and shortage. We do not have a food, uh, a food shortage, but the supply is in the hands of our truck drivers. So I, I just want to stress to you the urgency that I feel about this because as chairman and as at the Agriculture Committee, first and foremost, our number one priority is make sure our people are eating, that our school children are getting their meals. But I'm hearing from our school boards, you all know the story. They can't, the food may be there, but the utensils, Something like the forks, the spoons. You mentioned something about the type of paper and packaging that our meat processors have. All of this is coming from places like China. And that's why um, I'm, I'm saying this is such an important issue here. And so let me start with you, Mr. Sampson. I, you're tr trucking association, correct? Correct. All right. We got a two-pronged problem here. Number one, and it's come out, 15,000 driver vacancies right now, but I've just heard that number is up to 80,000. And then on top of that, I'm informed that our truck drivers careers last less than a year for 90% of them. If this isn't a barn burner of a crisis waiting to happen and our failure to address it properly could be detrimental to our nation and the world because we supply food. And as you can see, in Los Angeles, uh, in Long Beach, 40%, those ports in California, 
bring in 40% of our trade and our commodities. One of the other things I found out about this as I'm getting into it, and this is a danger, but we'll put this on the back burner for now, but we are too dependent on China for some very basics. Dear Tractor, I talked to them. They depend on China for some of their equipment that they can't get that delays it. So I just want to stress the importance of this hearing. And I, I am moving, as I said, as we speak now, my staff is meeting with the uh, committee staffs of, of the uh, Transportation Committee, the Labor Committee, and, of course, our Agriculture Committee, and uh, Secretary Vilsack is already moving on this. We have a little something in the, um, in the infrastructure bill that is a pilot for some of the things I'm talking about. But, but share with me this answer, this question. Why? What is it? that is causing, because if we go get these drivers and don't address the fact that 90% of them don't last a year, please tell us why that is happening and what we must do to fix it so that as we recruit new drivers, we're also moving simultaneously to address those issues of retaining those drivers. And that's why I call this movement that we are making jointly with the Agriculture Committee. And then we bring in those departments as well, because the Labor Department is going to have to be key to help us get out there and identify some of these drivers that may have quit that we can identify, that have the license already, that we have a need here and could come and help us in our hour of need. So I want to just bring those to you, and I want us to leave here with, with an understanding that we are not going to let this happen any way, any shape to have a delay in our food uh, supply uh, system. Why is it that we can't keep these drivers a year, 90% of them? I guess I'll start with the, the driver shortage issue. Of course, you know, this is something that was pre-pandemic, something that's been systemic, uh, a systemic problem in trucking for, for years. And uh, the uh, COVID pandemic just exasperated the issue. And, and that's why we saw an uptick, I believe, from about 55,000 short to 80,000 short. Uh, what we're doing within the industry, we're trying to uh, increase pay, of course, increase incentives, increase flexibility. Of course, the over-the-road truck driver could be a, a taxing uh, position to have. Uh, we have a lot of competition as well within other industries. Uh, the truck driver is, is, is a great, a fantastic career, uh, but then all of a sudden, if they need to stay home or stay closer to family, then they'll go to an alternative construction or other job uh, in, in a similar uh, uh, career path as, as they would be for a truck driver. And so from a trucking industry, we've got to, uh, we're looking at, of course, a Drive Safe Act, looking at recruiting younger drivers right now. We miss that uh, eight 
18 to 20 year old uh, recruitment. We can't go to high schools. We can't go to the future farmers of America and recruit them as a original career. And so if they come in at 21 or 25, they've probably already had a career. And so if we're able to get to them educate them on the industry, maybe they buy in a little bit more uh, as, as, we're, as we're moving forward and, and build a career out of that as opposed to an alternative career. And so there's a lot of things going on, both military, women in trucking, uh, urban uh, as well, and, and that's kind of been our focus, but retainment has definitely been a, a big issue. Yes, thank you very much. And now I recognize the gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Austin Scott, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, I appreciate you having this meeting. I'm going to focus on uh, Mr. Swalls from uh, Colquitt County, my district, and uh, with a few questions. I think a lot's been said here, but I, I do want to point out uh, in, in my part of Georgia, Chairman, in uh, southwest Georgia's uh, economic region, the unemployment rate is 2.8%. And that includes Colquitt County and in Tiff County, which is just to the east of uh, Mr. Swallow's district, it's 2.3%. One of the things that uh, we do have a problem with, and the, the reason the, the unemployment rate is so low, which is a good thing, but the labor participation rate is also down, and that is a bad thing. And so I do think that uh, the federal government has made some of these issues worse with uh, some of the enhanced unemployment benefits and other things that have been paid out. And I do hope that since those uh, enhanced unemployment benefits have stopped, that the labor force participation rate will move back to uh, a more normal a more normal level. But did, did I understand you, Mr. Swalls, to say that your price of fuel is up 48%? Yes, sir. Is that since January of this year? Yes, sir. That's what we're experiencing currently. So it's costing Americans more to get to, to the grocery store as well as costing Americans to get out of the grocery store. And certainly the, the increased cost of fuel and transportation uh, in, increases the cost of, of everything. Uh, one of my concerns in, to, in talking with the farmers back home is, is products that we've all, always been able to get. Uh, you don't use it a whole lot. And uh, or I should say you wouldn't use as much as, uh, as a cotton grower, I don't think, but Roundup, for example, uh, the farmers that I know are being told that they need to go ahead and make their purchases for next year, uh, this year, if if they want the chemicals. Uh, you spoke to it a little bit, but could you speak more to the crop protection products and and their availability? And one of the things I want to point out to the people that are that may be watching this that are not in ag production is farmers have a, a window of time in which they have to apply. Uh, whether it's a pesticide or a fertilizer or some other type of chemical, you have you have windows in which you have to do everything from plant the seed to fertilize the crop to put the, the crop protection products there. Can you speak to that supply chain issue and the uh, potential damage uh, to the supply of food for the, the American citizens? Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, I, I think uh, Mr. Cinco was alluded uh, earlier about, he was talking about um, the, the hardship of trying to secure the products of which you need for, for manufacturing on their side, of course, from us, from a production side. Um, it, was, it was very difficult and very hard uh, on our business to try to secure products earlier in the year as we were not using those products for obviously a great deal of time 
uh, crop being made in the spring and then through the summer and the fall. But we were trying to secure those products to ensure that we would have uh, crop protection uh, products. People in the um, um, crop protection product business were telling me back as early as February that there would be strains on the supply chain. Um, so as we, we started trying to um, secure that, and then of course we saw price increases uh, coming after that. As you mentioned a while ago, uh, glyphosate, a Roundup, for example, uh, is basically non-existent at this point. Uh, many of these uh, chemicals that we are looking for, uh, fungicides, bactericides, those sort of things, are getting harder and harder to find, and it's become a longer and a longer period of time, even if you can find them. So you have the, the issue of the, the uh, protection of the crop protection products being uh, a lot more expensive, them not being readily available, and now it's getting to a point where they're not available at all, or certainly not in the time period of which to be able to make a crop. So that is going to be a, a, an incredible strain. It is an incredible strain. It's going to continue to, to get worse, it appears, uh, the strain on being able to secure these products in order for us to be able to produce the crop. So obviously, the, the, the less protection products we have, the less yields we're going to have and crop failures. And that is going to tax the the American farm, but the American farm, uh, the American food supply chain. Thank you for that answer, and Mr. Chairman, I'm I'm almost out of time. But I'm look when I go to the grocery store in Tifton, Georgia, uh, there are many times that I come home without the the yogurts that my kids want to eat, and uh, I know what the impact of the price increases has has done to my family, and I certainly know that it has uh, hurt a lot of people. Um, very bad in this country. And so I appreciate you having this hearing and I uh, look forward to working with you to help solve the problems. Thank you very much, uh, Congressman Scott. And now I recognize the gentleman from California, Mr. Costa, who is also the chair of the subcommittee on livestock and foreign agriculture. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Durkin, um, in your testimony, you talked about the importance of uh, Laprino Foods that exports 26% of their products. In California, the number one agricultural state in the union, we export 44% of our agricultural products. Um, clearly, when you talked about an example that you may lose some market share as a result of the supply chain crunch, there's no guarantee you're going to get the, that, that customer back, right? Absolutely. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this took uh, decades of relationship building and over time. Um, we have no idea whether we'll be able to regain that customer, and our hope is over time we will. Uh, the ability to be able to do that, though, uh, means that we need to be competitive. In order to be competitive, we need to be make sure that we have shipping rates and prices that we can uh, obviously uh, go to our customers. That's a good segue because uh, you also referenced uh, the importance of the Bipartisan Ocean Shipping and Reform Act of 2021 that I've been working with my colleagues on and Senator Garamendi. Um, and I, I think that we need to look at this effort, this crisis that we're in, and certainly we, we, we saw underlying tones of it when restaurants and schools were closed last spring because of the pandemic. When you take a complicated, complex food supply chain and you turn it upside down, the disruptions can occur. And then now one of the factors that we've talked about, multiple factors that are causing this supply chain uh, uh, crunch that we're dealing with, uh, but also demand 
by American consumers for products as this economy is beginning to come back. I mean, uh, the 60 to 70 container ships that we see at Long Beach and 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 Los Angeles port, uh, they're telling me that, I mean, this is in part because of the pent-up demand as a result of the pandemic and other factors and, and the economy growing. To you and to the other witnesses, I think we need to look at this in short-term and long-term solutions. Yep. Certainly the issue in the short-term efforts, the 24-7 operations with Long Beach and LA is a positive. But I think we ought to do that with Oakland, don't you think? And we ought to do that with some of our other ports and harbors during this crisis. Um, the infrastructure package, that deals more with long-term efforts uh, to uh, increase our increase our capacity uh, in those areas. On the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, would you put that in the long term or the, or the short term? We'd like to get that passed this year uh, so the Maritime Commission can deal with these containers that are going back empty. That would be a short term, absolutely. Right. But we need to get it passed immediately. Yeah, and, and this task force that the president has set up, I think, is helpful with the different disciplines, DOT, USDA, the trade representatives. Chairman uh, Scott talked about the efforts to reach out with the uh, corresponding uh, efforts of the other three committees that have jurisdiction in this area. I think we've got to be working together in a collaborative uh, effort to list both short-term and long-term solutions, and we got to do it at the same time. Uh, you have any any of the other witnesses, Mr. Durkin and others, uh, advice to give us on how we 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 orchestrate that? Congressman Costa, good to see you. Um, I would say that agency-wide, we're working very closely with both USDA, DOT, and I think having the committees of jurisdiction working as closely would be extraordinarily helpful. I think when you're looking at the LA Long Beach uh, port system and the 24-7, we're running into bottleneck issues as you continue down the process. We're running into equipment chassis issues. We're running into driver issues. And we've had those for a number of years, and, and we're, we're devising rail corridors that will help, but that's the longer-term infrastructure package that will uh, update our capacity. I think you're looking at communication problems. I think the shipper, the, the, the ship line has one uh, goal of, of offloading and then and then heading out. I think the, the port itself has another goal, the carrier has another goal, and the warehouse has another goal. And I think unless you have that communication throughout that entire supply chain and everybody on the same page, I think we're gonna continue to see those issues. But I think to your point- And our point, products that are coming in and are going out, Mr. Durkin, you and I discussed about the perishable nature and they're not all the same. They're not all the same. Uh, uh, Representative Thompson, yep, absolutely, and do you have concerns on this? Will uh, you be able to get the pr product that uh, does it go out of date in a certain period of time? And obviously our customers are waiting for that, and uh, they miss a window on that. It's an issue with that we have and they have. Would any of the witnesses care to comment? My time's expiring here, Mr. Chairman, but I, I think that when you hit on the collaboration of the other corresponding jurisdictional committees, as well as the task force that the president has set up, we ought to have a meeting together and, and really divide these into short-term efforts and longer-term efforts to figure out how we can do both at the same time to address this crisis that all of us know is, is up upon us. You're absolutely right, Congressman Costa, and that's why we're moving with all deliberate speed 
And uh, as I mentioned, we're already in contact with Ed Labor and the Labor Secretary. We're already in contact. Of course, as you know, we're working closely with Secretary Vilsack and, of course, transportation. Well, you have we're my complete support and I think Thank the you. committee and let us know how we can help you. We certainly will. Thank you. And now I recognize the gentleman from Nebraska, Mr. Bacon. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, uh, Chairman. Uh, I appreciate the time today. And I appreciate the, uh, all the panelists that were here in their testimony. My first question is to John Schwals. Uh, you mentioned fertilizers are up 35%. Uh, I'm hearing the same thing from our agriculture uh, producers in Nebraska. And uh, what, what do you think is contributing to the, those, these inputs being so much higher? Uh, and fertilizer being probably the best example. Well, what I'm being told um, is the lack of tech supplies. That um, we, we use a tremendous amount of tech materials that are using crop protection products uh, imported from China. So I'm being told the uh, lack of tech supplies coming in, and then obviously, so there, there continues to be the same demand for these products, but there's a very short side supply. Thank you. Uh, it's a big concern in Nebraska, price of these inputs. So I'm sure that's a concern for all of our farmers right now, not just in Nebraska. Um, my next question is to Mr. Wells. Uh, you say 70% of our exports use water, our agriculture exports. Can you talk a little bit about the state of our lock system? Because I hear a lot of concerns on that as well. Absolutely. Um, Gromark ships a tremendous amount of crop nutrition products uh, via the inland waterway system. Uh, we have a number of facilities that are located on that inland waterway system and we're, we're, we're impacted quite a lot from high water situations from low water situations you know where they're where they're having to dredge um, we're also a big proponent of uh, increasing our lock system and repairing our lock and dam system 1200 foot locks would be our goal um, as they cut, bring toes up the river uh, without 1200 foot locks they're breaking those toes it just adds to the time delay and the time lag uh, for us to get products uh, into our into our facility so uh, th those would be a few comments i'd make on that subject i appreciate those comments uh, I, the research i've done you know you have brazil rebuilding their locks and they're gonna be triple the size of ours uh, so we can produce corn soybeans you know beef and pork at a price more competitive than anybody in the world if we can't, if our logistics adds to the cost over our, our competitors, that's gonna cut into our trade. So I think it's important to put some priority on the lock system in our, in our ports. Uh, it's been a proponent of that. Uh, finally, I'd just like to transition to the, our trucking side of this. Uh, 80,000 shortage of truck drivers, that is a grave concern. I know a lot of our trades are in the same boat, whether it's welders and I can go on and on. Um, could you again talk a little about some of the things we could do to incentivize folks to get into the trucking industry. Uh, you mentioned it a little bit, but I'd love to hear a little more. Sure, yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, we have been working on uh, industry-wide incentives, trying to figure out how to uh, increase driver pay, increase flexibility, uh, provide them a schedule that may be a little bit more family-friendly, uh, benefits, uh, bonuses, 
And of course, we're, we're also trying to work on the, the younger drivers, bringing them in. Uh, we've done, uh, you know, there's a lot of high schools right now that are looking at CDL programs. Uh, we have been working closely with FFA. I know they've got almost 700,000 uh, FFA uh, uh, students that are part of the system. And so we're, we've been reaching out to the younger set. We've always been reaching out on the military side, uh, trying to get more women in trucking, uh, trying to reach out to, to those folks that are in the urban communities, really educating them that this is a really, this, this is a fantastic uh, uh, career. This is a fantastic opportunity. And, and this is something that, that we've been pushing on and the image of the industry as well. We've really been pushing hard. Agriculture does that very well uh, on their side. But from a trucking standpoint, we've also been showing them that this is a, a, a valuable career path and something that should be uh, looked at. What impresses me in Nebraska, uh, a lot of the trucking companies will, tr will pay folks to go through the training with, with health insurance, and then you got a great job when you come out. And I think it's a, a model for a lot of our trades right now that we can build on. But one of the things that concerns me is that we have 2% unemployment in Nebraska. We have only about a 61% workforce participation. That's sort of true nationally. Uh, in your view, are, is there federal policies that are inhibiting folks from getting back into the workforce? So we're sitting at 61%, used to be around 67%, 68, uh, if I have my numbers right. Uh, and yet we only have 2% unemployment in Nebraska. I know it's under five nationally, roughly. Are there things the federal government's doing that's inhibiting folks getting back into the workforce, in your view? I think, uh, you know, it's, it's been difficult to figure out exactly why they have stayed out of the workforce. Uh, there's been incentives, I know, you know, industry-wide or sector-wide, not just in trucking, but, but all places, we're starting to see an increase in hourly wages, and we still haven't seen a lot of those workers come back. And so we've, we've heard a handful of things, but haven't quite been able to put our finger on the pulse of exactly what's keeping these people uh, outside of, of, of the current workforce. Well, thank you very much for your time, and Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you, sir. And now I recognize the gentlewoman from North Carolina, Ms. Alma Adams, who is also the vice chair of our Committee on Agriculture. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you to the ranking member as well for hosting the hearing today. And thank you to the witnesses uh, for your testimony. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted a number of underlying issues with our supply chain, but perhaps the clearest, the, the fragility of our food supply lane chain. The pandemic has also amplified the importance of having a durable and an adaptable uh, food, food supply chain, one of the most complex yet important logistics uh, programs that we need for our sustainability. Uh, as we've heard from our witnesses today, some of the challenges our supply chain continues to face are congestion at ports and driver and labor shortages. And while these shortages are affecting the entire country, we must not forget the impact that they have on our school districts and our food service institutions. Uh, these institutions continue to struggle to provide children and adults with adequate food as they respond to supply chain disruption. Uh, Mr. Senko, uh, in your testimony, you mentioned that bakers are often providing baked goods to the federal feeding programs, such as the school breakfast, lunch programs, snap and wick. So can you elaborate a little bit on how the various supply chain disruptions could impact Baker's ability to continue to serve that program? 
Uh, yes, thanks, Congresswoman. The impact of the specifications for the ingredients for the school products is makes it difficult to get the specific in ingredients you have to have. Um, Durham flour, for example, comes from North Dakota and the crop was 50% less than what was expected. The price has gone up almost to, almost to a double. Uh, it's hard to get, it's hard to make, and until those specifications get adjusted or moved, I think we're gonna have some issues with f supplying the schools. Okay. Um, so, Mr. Farah, um, the COVID-19 pandemic continues to uh, impact the ability of labor to prepare food for school districts, for restaurants, retail, and institutional food service settings, such as hospitals and prisons. So what policy measures can address labor shortages in the institutional food sector? Was that for Mr. Ferreira? I'm sorry, man, we have a hard uh, time here. Yeah, yes, Mr. Ferreira. Okay, yes, yes, uh -huh. yes ma'am. I think, you know, we, this is going to take a, a, um, a full approach. It's not going to be one single bullet item. Uh, I do think we need to change the conversation. There is uh, dignity of work and dignity of working in uh, a supermarket. You think of the different career paths, chefs, bakers, uh, you know, technology, customer service, there's so many different opportunities uh, that I think we need to, to continue to focus on educating our young people, educating others that maybe are sitting out of the workforce, uh, that these are great jobs and great opportunities uh, to come back and to, to work in, in stores. And I think particularly for retail, there's a tremendous amount of flexibility, whether you're looking for full-time or part-time, uh, it could be really attractive to those uh, folks who are looking for a little bit more flexibility uh, in their lifestyle. Right. Mr. Durkin, uh, USDA has stated that the COVID-19 pandemic exposed the food system that was rigid, consolidated, and fragile. So what was this experience, uh, what was your, what was this your experience, and, and can you elaborate a little bit uh, based on your own company's ex uh, experience? Yeah, I mean, COVID-19 actually had a significant impact. However, I would say uh, to attest to our organization and all of our workforce that actually we were able to get through the pandemic in a very, very positive way. Uh, we we actually would say there wasn't one customer order that we did not uh, that did not miss. So we're we were confident in that. It continued to face some challenges, uh, like the rest of the panelists, uh, my co-panelists on this. We have some labor shortages that we certainly are, are dealing with. But from a port issue standpoint, that has actually uh, been our biggest challenge going forward. And uh, I view this, and as I said earlier, to the, using the chairman's words, this is uh, exports are in a crisis. And um, we, any help that the, the, uh, the House Ag Committee and the, this body can help on that, I think, will be really, really important and useful for the entire. Thank uh, you. Thank you. Mr. Sampson, um, in your testimony, you mentioned that there's currently an 80,000 truck driver shortage, according to current trends that that gap could double by 2030. So uh, what factors do you attribute the shortage of truck drivers and how does uh, uh, that compare to the pre-pandemic environment? I think uh, quickly, uh, you know, we, we have a, a, an aging workforce, uh, and, which is one of the big issues. And 
the problems that they ran into uh, with having to deal with the COVID pandemic drove a lot of those that were close to retirement towards retirement. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we, we having an issue with trying to bring these younger folks in is is a big deal that, that we're currently focused on. Um, and so I think, you know, there, there's a handful of things uh, that we're trying to do to retain and recruit, uh, as the chairman had expressed earlier. Uh, but it's a difficult you, environment right now. Thank you. I'm out of time. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you uh, very much. And now I recognize the gentleman from Tennessee. Mr. J. Jarlay, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman. And I, I thank all of you for being here today to discuss the supply chain shortage. Uh, I want to focus a little bit, though, on uh, the mandates and how that's impacting our, our, our shortage of workers, not just in the trucking industry, but on the railroads. The CSX has a mandate coming on November 8th. We have the federal mandate uh, slated to take effect on November 22nd. And um, Mr. Sampson and, and uh, Mr. Wells, how helpful would it be if, if these mandates were delayed, pushed back? And then I also want to talk about natural immunity. Sure. Just quickly, I just want to, to make it clear that the trucking industry is, is not anti-vaccination. Uh, we are uh, anti-supply uh, uh, chain inefficiency. And what we've heard from a lot of our carriers is you've got some, some very large carriers that have uh, vaccine, hes vaccine hesitancy in their drivers. And let's just say 50% of their drivers are not vaccinated. And we've heard 80% of those 50% will never become vaccinated. And so we're looking at the potential of them leaving larger companies to go to a company that's under 100 drivers, or they have the uh, alternative to, to leave the industry altogether. And so we're looking at that as it compounding uh, it, negative significantly compounding the, the driver shortage issue and growing that, which, which is of great concern to our industry. All right. And, and I have a big G and Titan trucking in my district in Shelbyville, Tennessee, and they've been sounding the alarm as well. I've heard numbers 40 percent. You said 50 percent. And these are educated people. They, they, they've been through the worst of the pandemic. Here we are. Uh, the Delta variant is subsiding. We've been 18 months into this. We've had first responders, frontline workers, police officers, uh, our military personnel, border agents. I mean, just all walks of life that have made it through the pandemic. And I'm, I'm pro-vaccine, I'm vaccinated, uh, but it's not right for everyone. And thankfully we have excellent therapeutics and monoclonal antibodies, which uh, can keep you out of the hospital 70% of the time. We know that the deaths with this pandemic, 95% have occurred in people over 50. Uh, you, you start looking at the younger age groups and uh, you know, I can understand some of their concerns uh, about the uh, vaccine and some of the side effects. Plus, we don't know how long that the vaccine actually works. We know that uh, I'm due for a booster. I had Pfizer back in November. I'm not 65, but so we know that the vaccine efficiency does wane with time. But natural immunity, on the other hand, if we're not afraid to follow the science, which we shouldn't be, that's what this whole thing's been about, according to CDC, Dr. Fauci and others, we need to look at the studies coming out of Israel and Britain and other European countries that show natural immunity to be superior to the vaccine. Uh, I, I was on a, a Fox show the other night where the host said that, yeah, but they said that the natural immunity only lasts 16 months. Well, guess what? They've been tracking it 16 months. So at 18 months, they'll probably say 18. At two years, they may say two years. 
Uh, bottom line is SARS-1 that happened 20 years ago. Those people are still immune. So why aren't we looking at natural immunity and accounting that as as the same as being vaccinated? It just doesn't make any sense. And I get that they want to get as many people vaccinated as possible. But what you're telling me is, is we could have a catastrophe here in a short time in terms of supply chain if up to 40 or 50 percent of your truckers leave. And, and Mr. Wells, do you agree with that? In yes. Of- uh, we're, yes. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're short workers at this point in time. Um, we have, I believe, around 290 openings today, just in Illinois, Iowa and Wisconsin for our for our area. But, you know, mandates um, such as a vaccine vaccine mandate, we're really concerned that it'll lead to more openings. Um, we're in, we operate a lot in rural America, as you well know, and it's hard to find uh, labor in rural settings to begin with. Uh, they may be a little more reluctant. And so um, I've I heard a study uh, repeated on the radio the other day that uh, they expect potentially up to 33% of the workforce that are unvaccinated to lead the workforce. So I think it would be helpful for you guys if you issued letters. I've written letters on behalf of TVA, Arnold Air Force Base that deal with hypersonic weapons. You can't replace some of these skilled people. You can't just replace a trucker overnight. And so I, I think if we could ask at the very least for a pause in this mandate, push it back after the holidays. Let, let's see how, how the uh, pandemic turns into an endemic and, and look at the new drugs that are coming out, consider natural immunity. And we just need some more time, this hard mandate just just feels like it's going to create a disaster, you know, almost like we saw in the withdrawal from Afghanistan. We need a contingency plan. So I would urge you guys to you know, write letters to the president, the administration, and ask at the very least for a pause so uh, so we can look at this. Let's follow the science. People aren't afraid to. I don't blame people for, for looking at uh, uh, you know things skeptically, but we can handle the truth. We just need to know the truth. And thank you, guys. I know I'm out of time. Thank you, Chairman, for your indulgence. Thank you. And now I recognize the gentlewoman from Connecticut, Mrs. Hayes, who is also the chair of the Subcommittee on Nutrition Oversight Department of Operations. You're recognized for five minutes, Ms. Hayes. Thank you. You may want to unmute Ms. Hayes. I'm sorry. Thank no you, problem. Mr. Chair. Sure. Thank you once again for holding this very important hearing. I've heard of the immense daily impact of global supply chain disruptions from constituents all over my district. 90% of Connecticut restaurant operators report paying more for food. Connecticut Costco stores imposed a one per customer limit on paper towels and toilet paper in early October due to disruptions in in shipments. And school districts have reported continuing anxiety of supply chain disruptions interfering with their ability to feed children during the school day. These trends are disturbing, but they can be fixed. When faced with empty grocery store shelves and struggling producers in 2020, we tackled the issue with emergency policies. Our COVID-19 response bills provided direct payments to agricultural producers, established grants for farm workers, meatpacking workers, and frontline grocery workers, invested in and expanded processing capacity for small producers. Additionally, the USDA announced that they will use a total of $2 billion to address supply chain issues nationally and in schools. This week, I joined the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, which would also help address global disruptions. 
While all of this has worked to mitigate what can what could have been a more dire situation, we still clearly have more work to do. In the testimony today, we heard how a lack of labor availability is at the core of industry disruptions. Of course, we must ensure our agricultural supply chains are resilient, stable, and fortified for the future, but we cannot do so at the expense of workers' dignity and compensation. So Mr. Ferrara, in addition to grocery store owners raging wages, offering overtime compensation and sign-on bonuses, you recommended that Congress invest in workforce training programs for workers entering the grocery industry. Can you go more into detail on how that would benefit workers looking for long-term stable employment? Yes, Congresswoman, and I'm glad you mentioned what our members have done. Over 93% of increased wages, bonuses, provided other benefits to their members. We have a tremendous opportunity. When you think of the grocery store, there are so many different departments in that store that are, um, are specialized. And we have opportunities to help train bakers, to help train chefs, to help train uh, deli workers, florists, uh, meat cutters in our stores. We cut meat in our stores still. These are skilled jobs. They are high demand, and it's really a tremendous opportunity opportunity for us to get uh, to folks, particularly local, um, excuse me, young folks, uh, to get them into the workforce with a skill that will stay with them uh, and can be very, very beneficial throughout their career. And we would gladly work with you and the other members to be able to do that. Thank you. On my other committee of education and labor, I have been intensely focused on career training programs, technical programs that would address some of the very things that you have just said. Um, additionally, a lack of access to H-2A workers has impacted dairy farms across the country, especially those in my district. Earlier this year, we voted to pass the Farm Worker Modernization Act, which would help address the H-2A bottleneck and improve work, workforce protections for H-2A workers. Mr. Durkin, can you explain how impediments to accessing H-2A visas have affected your members, particularly small dairy farms? Yeah. Uh, obviously, labor shortage is a significant impact across the country, and uh, dairy farms are by no, no means uh, exempt from that. So uh, clearly, anything that we can do on that end to support our farmers, uh, we don't own any of the farms personally. We supply all of our milk, get all of our milk through the DFA and co-ops across the country, and we, they're valuable supporters of us. And anything we do, we say it all starts with milk. And so anything we can do to help the farmer to be more successful on their end is a benefit to us. Thank you. And lastly, I am deeply concerned about reports of disruptions to school food deliveries across Connecticut and the nation. Mr. Cinco, you mentioned in your testimony that several of your members may no longer be able to supply baked goods to schools due to global disruptions. In your opinion, how can we strengthen local supply chains to prevent such catastrophic disruptions? Well, Congresswoman, I think we need to worry about the transportation of ingredients. Uh, we can't do anything about the weather situations that cause disruptions in Durham flour, but if we could get the material here, we could make it and distribute it. It's just very difficult to get it here at this point. Um, other than that, I, I would say that's about the extent of that. 
Well, thank you for your input. I think that's what we're all trying to do to lessen the disruptions and open up access to the supply chain. My time has expired. Mr. Chair, I yield back. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Hayes. And now I recognize the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Davis. You're recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I think this stakeholder conversation is a very important one for us to have. And we've got to try to continue to mitigate the ways Americans are actually being crushed by high prices on gas, groceries, natural gas, and to no fault of any of the industries that are represented here today. Uh, every sector is being crushed beneath the weight of this administration's rampant spending agenda that's driving high costs and inflation. There's a shortage on everything from semiconductors to shrimp paste right now in this country. And when we look at this problem holistically, there's an obvious worker shortage that as all of you have testified and as my colleagues have continually brought up, there is a worker shortage that is contributing greatly to our supply chain issues. There are approximately 11 million work-ready adults certified by their state workforce agencies who are receiving SNAP benefits but could start working immediately to fill some of the 10.6 million jobs that are open today. Um, Chairman Scott mentioned it. Uh, Mr. Sampson mentioned the thousands of truck driving jobs that are available. You know, we've got to look under our jurisdiction to what we can do to invest in our SNAP education and training program to get these families that are receiving benefits trained for the jobs that we know are open. And frankly, we tried that when we were in the majority during the last farm bill. And some of us were called evil for saying if we don't do it then, when the economy's great, when will we ever do it? Now we see the failure of that failed policy is that we don't have enough workers trained to address this new supply chain crisis. And this administration seems to want to do nothing about it. Now, as we look, we can shift our workforce development programs, especially in the industries that all of you represent today, and we can fill these jobs, we can put this, this piece in the puzzle, but I want to start with uh, Mr. Wells, since I know him the best. Um, I'd like to start by asking you, what do you think we can do to maybe work with our SNAP workforce and training program to pair up our community colleges and places like Bloomington and Normal and be able to get people trained to take the jobs you mentioned are available at Growmark just a few minutes ago? Yeah, what, actually, we're reaching out um, to, to community colleges in a lot of the areas that we uh, do business. Um, we have technology that we purchased um, recently that uh, allows them to, for instance, uh, virtually drive a, a spray uh, machine. And so they're very high tech machines. And so, uh, Congressman, we're working very diligently in those areas and, and see that as an opportunity to source um, that level of, of labor. So we'd be happy to engage in that. Great. Um, anybody else want to tackle that issue? Uh, one, Mr. one of the Furrow? opportunities I think Congressman in the grocery business, retail and wholesale, is we'll train you on the job training. Get us in the, our distribution center. Get us, get us in our stores. We'll teach you to drive a forklift. We'll teach you to, to slice meat. We'll teach you to, to be a baker. Uh, we talk about truck drivers. You know, some of our members will pay for trucking school. Uh, for those that go through that, one of our members told us yesterday that three of their tr uh, truck drivers last year made over $150,000 a year. Uh, we need to be talking more about that 
and those kind of careers that uh, can get people in into these jobs and uh, really you know make a great way to support their family. Well, and you mentioned you know and, and your industries employ a lot of our blue collar workforce. Don't underestimate how many blue collar workers actually have student debt. They went to college, they incurred debt, they didn't get a degree. And now they're working in industries that have shortages right now. And they're making good money at that. But there's a new benefit that all of us, and Republicans and Democrats, passed uh, in the CARES Act that allows employers to pay down student debt and have that debt tax-free for their employee up to $5,250. This is a great recruitment and retention tool that many of the companies that you all represent ought to actually take advantage of. You don't have to fill out some grant paperwork. You don't have to wait for appropriations for a program to apply for. This is actually using the same provisions as the tuition reimbursement program that many of your companies that you represent have used for years. Take advantage of this. If you need more information, go to my website, rodneydavis.house.gov, and you'll be able to see some information on this student loan repayment program. But get employers engaged. This is a new program that you can all take advantage of. And I have to go to another hearing, so I'm going I'm to yield back. Thank you. And now I recognize the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Rush, you're recognized for five minutes. Uh, Mr. Rush, you're recognized. You may need to unmute. No sound. We'll go to Ms. Pingree while he sorts out his technical issues. Okay. Um, if word can get to um, Mr. Rush, we'll allow him time to work out those uh, communication difficulties, and we'll come back to him. Staff, let let me know when he's available. And we will now recognize the gentlewoman from Maine, Ms. Pingree for five minutes. Thank you very much, Mr. Chair. Um, thank you to all of the witnesses for uh, being with us today to talk about such an important topic. And I, I really appreciate all of the answers that you've been giving us. I'll, uh, I'll bring up a couple of questions. Um, for Mr. Ferrara from the National Grocers Association uh, about consolidation, I really appreciated your comments and the testimony about how consolidation has exacerbated supply chain issues. We all saw the impacts of this in another highly consolidated sector in meat processing early in the pandemic when a small number of very large meat plants shut down, significantly reducing processing capacity and disrupting the supply chain nationwide. Could you expand a little on how, about how consolidation in the food and agriculture sector, including grocery retail, is affecting the supply chains? And do you have any recommendations that you would make? to improve competition and level the playing field for small and independent businesses? Yes, Congresswoman. As we've seen uh, the most dominant players get larger, their suppliers have to get larger to, uh, to be able to just compete with them and engage, engage with them. Uh, and that does leave a lot of the local and uh, you know, smaller regional folks uh, maybe not at the most competitive uh, advantage to be able to compete. One thing about independent grocers is that we are so local, we are so connected to those local food systems, to those local producers, uh, that we were able to take advantage of that, quite frankly, during the pandemic. We certainly felt the impacts of the, the meat shortages uh, you know, during those, those few weeks, 
but I think we had an advantage in one, we had butchers in our store, they, they're cutting meat, we were able to work with other suppliers. A lot of our members were able to work with local producers, local uh, uh, ranchers uh, and uh, meat packers to be able to get supply and to keep their shelves full. I think it is an area where it's a huge uh, advantage for independent grocers to work with local producers. They're tied in uh, so uh, so strongly, and it's an area that they can differentiate. Uh, but we do need to have a focus on really how the dominant players in the marketplace are inf influencing the full supply chain, and that includes uh, the impact on local producers. Yeah, thanks for your answer. I think it's a really important focus for this committee and one that does come up. And uh, I appreciate your remarks about uh, being able to purchase more locally because you have that connection. We certainly saw that in a state like Maine, where there was great demand for buying more locally. And uh, I think that's also an important uh, important part of uh, the investments that we need to be making is, is making it possible for more food to be so, sold locally. Um, I, I'm, I guess I'll have anybody on the panel answer my second question. Um, uh, I, I, you know, the agriculture sector is uh, in particular in, in on the front lines of climate change, and we've seen the impact of more frequent and extreme weather events. Just a few weeks ago, Hurricane Ida destroyed crops and livestock, and they took key, key crop input production facilities offline. Um, the drought out west has had similar devastating impacts. Uh, Mr. Cinco, you mentioned um, some of the challenges with Durham wheat, which was uh, dramatically affected by the drought, the ability to get that. So while we're here today talking about, you know, trucking shortages, labor shortages, some of those things in the supply chain, it's much harder to impact uh, the weather issues that are um, dealing with our food supply um, and our availability, and that's something that doesn't appear to be going away in the future. Um, Mr. Cinco, I don't know if you want to comment on that or anybody else just about how how we factor that into these future supply chain challenges. There's going to have to be some formulation changes. There's going to, have to be some technological advances in the food industry. Uh, as I said before, gluten is a very short commodity right now, and most of my suppliers are coming up with enzymes that reduce the usage of gluten in the facility. So we've gone from 25,000 pounds a week down to like 12 or 13, which is helping us, even though you're paying for an enzyme, at least you can produce and you don't have to fight the uh, lack of gluten in the world. So I think technology going forward is going to help for the baking industry itself. Uh, yeah, that, that's an interesting perspective. Any, anybody else, um, who's been talking to us about supply chain issues and availability want to weigh in on this issue of, you know, weather that's going to continue to be unpredictable and how we, how we attempt to plan around that. I, I believe, you know, on, on the biotechnology side for uh, row crops, uh, certainly there's been tremendous advances uh, in biotechnology. There's a lot of talk about, developing more heat resistant hybrids uh, of corn, more drought resistant hybrids. And so I think it's important that we uh, again, utilize that technology to the advancement of the industry and to feed the country. Yeah, resistance and crop resistance and all of those kinds of things I think are important part of the research going into the future. So thank you for that. I'm over my time, but I really appreciate all of you being here with us today. And I yield back, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Ms. Pingree. And now I recognize the gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Allen. You're recognized oh, you, Mr. for Chairman. five minutes. <clears throat> can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Good. Go right Thank ahead. you. 
And thanks for uh, having this uh, hearing today. Uh, this is, uh, you know, this is very critical. Um, we, we need to have a sense of urgency with this with this issue. Um, and we need an all of government approach because uh, we, we've talked about this now for months. And uh, we talk about, you know, solutions, that sort of thing. And, uh, you, you know, we're talking top down solutions. We're talking spending more money. Uh, you know, and all these other uh, uh, ideologues that really don't address the problem. And of course, we continue to do the same thing and expect a different result. And uh, we know what that is. So, uh, you know, my concern is uh, that uh, we can solve this problem, but we can't solve it under the current template. Uh, meaning that uh, whether it's uh, incentivizing people to go to work, you know, for example, we got 25 million work capable people on SNAP program right now that would enjoy a great opportunity to make $150,000 a year. They just need to be trained up. Uh, we've got, uh, uh, you know, we've got 10 million people sitting on the sidelines and for whatever reason, uh, because of loan forgiveness and all these other things or some, you know, if the government stimulus program, uh, they're not motivated to work. Uh, so what we've done is created uh, this uh, whatever utopia you want to call it. And, and now we've got huge labor problem. We got a labor department that won't even allow uh, 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 uh uh, legal programs to work for, uh, to get, uh, uh, people in here. We've, we've solved our labor problem for, for generations, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, 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 immigrant labor. And so here we are, and we can't even get those, uh, programs to work. Uh, the labor department, uh, is creating havoc with that. So, you know, somewhere, uh, and I want to hear from every witness somewhere we got, we got to do this from the bottom up rather than top down. Uh, and, and, and what I want to know is what do we need? What do we need to do in the executive? The fastest way to do it is the executive branch. Now I'll give an example. Uh, in the 1980s, uh, the air traffic controllers pretty much, uh, went on strike and it shut down the airline industry. Uh, president Reagan immediately, uh, it got his full attention. He addressed it and he fixed it. And, you know, much to the chagrin of the union, but again, you've got a situation where the country was at stake and he did it with executive orders, which is his, his privilege in the, in the event of an emergency, we have an emergency here. So what I want to hear from the witnesses is what do we, what do we, and Congress moves entirely too slow, but where do we need to put pressure on the White House to either relax union jurisdictional rules, uh, pause regulations, uh, whatever we got to do to, to fix this problem and uh, get this economy moving again. And, uh, you know, I'll start, Mr. Cinco, with you and go through the entire panel. Congressman, we could use people that just want to be here. The 24-7 uh, work, work, work life balance, so for another sake of using it, is very difficult for us. Um, but the fresh 
bread that needs to go to places can't be stored for days. So we need to find a way to incentivize weekend work or extra shifts or things like that. Like people don't want to work midnights. People, there's a lot of jobs out there where people can go to places where they don't have to work midnights. They don't have to work the weekends. It's, it's very difficult for us to keep people here around the clock. Um, that would be somewhere to, to start, which we do that, but it becomes financially tough on a bakery of our size to pay extra money. I mean, bread is a commodity that everybody buys and the increase that we would pay is going to increase to the end user and it's going to be detrimental to our survival, so to speak. Yeah, Mr. Wells, I'm sorry I'm out of time here. <laughs> but anyway, I think you need to share that with this panel as we go forward. What do we need to do to correct this situation immediately and fix this problem? And I think if we put our heads together and we do it bottom up, we'll get it done. Thank you, and I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Allen, and you're absolutely right. We got to move out here right now and get this problem solved. Uh, the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Rush, you're recognized for five minutes. I certainly want to thank you, Mr. Chairman. This has been a very outstanding hearing, and I am glad about it. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I have heard from stakeholders in my district and around our nation about the unsustainable and dramatic cost increase due to issues in the supply chain. I'm currently drafting a letter to the FTC asking them to immediately begin to investigate and review price gouging in the supply chain. Mr. Durkin, you mentioned that for U.S. Uh, dairy businesses, Procurement prices are up between 20 to 30%. And Mr. Wells, in your testimony, you described how the Port Bank Law is resulting in rising demurrage and detention costs to shippers and eventually to consumers. Mr. Durkin, Mr. Wells, for your industry, can you expand upon the extent to which your members have suffered large cost increases and more broadly is price gouging in the food supply chain a problem that the federal government should be seeking to address uh, why and uh, or why not? Absolutely, we were having challenges from a from a cost standpoint, and I would argue in my 40 years in business, it's been unprecedented in terms of across the board where the increases are happening. Focusing on the export side of it, as I mentioned in my testimony, we've seen increases going up, uh, not only on the freight costs going across, but then demurrage charges that actually um, a, a booking will get rolled, will get charged on those uh, those bookings or those rolls, and it'll happen. We have no idea that a booking's been rolled, and then we get charge after charge after charge. So what a $5,000 bill turns into a $20,000 bill. So it is actually, is that impacting us? Absolutely. Mr. Wells? 
Congressman, we routinely face uh, demerge charges with the nature of our business. As you know, agriculture moves extremely quickly. And when weather windows uh, allow us to operate, we need to operate. And so it leads to a lot of congestion and has for years. Um, you know, the, the, the prices for products that farmers uh, pay for have, have gone up considerably. Uh, I would point to a convergence of factors, uh, feedstocks, natural gas, which is a primary uh, piece of, of anhydrous and, and nitrogen production has gone up. Transportation's gone up for reasons that we've talked about today. I can't, I can't point to any instances where I can say price gouging uh, occurred, but I could tell you that it is of great concern to our uh, members and to our farmer owners, uh, the rising costs that they're paying today. Uh, thank you. I recently met with members of the National Confectioners Association where we discussed supply chain issues. While Chicago confectioners have the same supply chain problems that other food manufacturers do, they bear an additional burden. That is because the USDA rigidly controls the import of sugar and is slow to allow adequate supplies to enter the U.S. Uh, even when they are needed. We're seeing the highest sugar prices in many years, and yet at the same time, USDA steadfastly claims there's enough sugar on the market. To be frank, my constituents feel differently. Um, that is, uh, Mr. Single, do you agree with me that it's time to finally uh, reform our sugar policies? And if so, what reforms do you recommend? Yeah, you are very correct, Congressman. The sugar, con the sugar is at a high price. We are seeing upwards of 20% increases in granulated sugar. Uh, the beet sugar that we're using out of Michigan is all dependent on the crops as we've referred to before, depending on the weather and how the crop reacts. That's a very important part of the, how much we have in the country. So if their crop is good, it seems to be less of a problem. When their crop is bad, USDA doesn't let us import. Uh, there's a hearing coming up speaking about uh, sweeteners in mid-November about honey, about how much we're gonna import of that. So that's gonna be the next problem on the sweetener side. It's gonna be a price gouge, I guess, as you said before. Um, but yeah, they, we need to look at how we import that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you so much. Are you a man? Thank you, Mr. Rush. Appreciate it. And now I recognize the gentleman from Pennsylvania, our ranking member, Thompson. You're recognized for five minutes, Mr. Ranking Member. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, you know, Congress has a job to do to address many of the issues that are being brought up to our attention today. However, action by the administration to provide regulatory relief or what I would, would uh, say would be regulatory flexibility would have the swiftest impact on the current bottlenecks in the supply chain. Now, I'm going to start with Mr. Wells. Uh, Mr. Wells, what immediate actions can the, can the Biden administration take through USDA or other departments to provide regulatory relief or regulatory flexibility and mitigate the current crisis? Uh, you know, one of our biggest challenges is in um, the transportation sector, as, as many have talked. I think there are some um, things that can be done with potentially raising weight limits for, for transportation. 
that would allow more product to be trans transported at one point in time. Um, we talked about hours of service exemptions. Uh, we talked about the uh, air miles, uh, increasing air miles from 150 to 200 miles. Um, those, those would all be some immediate uh, impacts, I think, on the transportation side of the business where we, we face a, a tremendous pressure. Ms. Wallace, thank you for those uh, very concrete recommendations. I want to open up to other members of the panel that may have any suggestions for uh, what this administration could do immediately, whether it's USDA or, or another agency department uh, for increased uh, regulatory flexibility. I, I mean, from the standpoint of we talked about the Shipping Reform Act and what we need to do there, that is something that's got to get done and get done immediately. And I know, know the bill is out there, but when we follow kind of the timing on this, the delay in terms of getting it approved by the House and then going to the Senate, my concern is what can be done very quickly on that. And the same thing on the 24-7. The administration put a lot of focus on that, but that's, that's not a law. It's not an executive order, and that needs to be done as immediately as well. Yeah, we saw in, in, in throughout 2020 with the Trump administration, a significant amount of flexibility was exercised through waivers because we were in a health crisis. Well, we're in a significant crisis when it comes to uh, impediments to the food supply chain. So uh, point well taken. Uh, Biden administration might want to look at some of the uh, that flexibilities, uh, similar set flexibilities exercised previously. Any other panelists have a go ahead? Mr. Uh, uh, yes, sir. I would also add uh, reinforced hours of service waiver. That's been something the Trump administration and the Biden administration have both been uh, very flexible on, but we're going to need to continue to have that. And, and even a longer term, um, I think uh, waiver is important. The other is uh, the WIC program, the Women's, Women, Infants and Children's. Um, with the supply chain challenges we're having, if there are shortages of certain WIC package items, I think it's very important that we are quickly, uh, emphasis on quickly, providing the flexibility so that those participants can get the item that they need that is available in the store, and they're not in a situation having to go without those items. So I think that's something to be done quickly. Very good. Anyone else? Go ahead, Ms. Sampson. I would just like to add on to the hours of service flexibility piece and the emergency, de emergency declarations were definitely helpful, uh, both on the wait side and the hours of service side. But you get into the port as well, and what used to be four to five turns from a truck is now down to three because of the detention time that they're waiting in line. And so being able to, to pause a clock, whether it's in the port or if it's going around an urban area, is nice to be able to, to try to limit the congestion that they're actually sitting in. No, thank you. I, I see this crisis every bit as um, as dangerous as what we experienced with the, the plague of 2020, because this is an assault on our economy and an assault on our um, on getting access to nutrition. The, the WIC program is a great example of that. And and I would hope the Biden administration would rise to the occasion, much as we saw the, the previous administration do in, the, in throughout 2020. Uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Durkin, I just want to circle back. I really you're. Testimony highlights, as we refer to as the export crisis. Uh, can you provide just a, an estimate of the cost that this crisis is to your business and the dairy industry more broadly? Well, from our standpoint, I talked about the incremental freight and uh, storage charges that we've incurred, and, and clearly it's in the millions of dollars. There's no doubt about that. What can't be measured, what can't be measured is the potential loss of customer customers that, uh, that not only we have, but really the dairy industry as a whole. So uh, we're a large purchaser of milk. We're a large part of the dairy industry, but you can multiply our numbers by by, by hundreds, and then you really kind of get into the impact of what it's having on the, uh, the overall dairy industry, which is significant. 
I think, uh, Mr. Chairman, we, we've got uh, some really good folks that are pending for confirmation at USTR, uh, specifically in the agriculture area. Um, it would it, it'd be great we get them confirmed, and quite frankly, they go to work uh, uh, working with our trading partners, and our trading partners put pressure to, to um, we'll put pressure on our trading partners to make sure they're they're not taking back these uh, these these storage containers empty but full of good American produced agriculture commodities so thank you mr. chairman yes thank you ranking member and you're absolutely right now I recognize the gentlewoman from New Hampshire miss Custer you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. Today's hearing topic hits close to home for my district and my region. Northern New England isn't an area you can easily pass through on your way to someplace else. We're at the end of many delivery lines, and they must be very deliberate to get to us. The vast majority of goods not already produced in New England have to be trucked into our region. And of course, there's a lot of labor and time required to do just that. So these realities have long contributed to higher prices for some goods. The pandemic supply chain disruptions have exacerbated the challenges we face. I do appreciate in the grand scheme, our nation's food supply chains are incredibly efficient and resilient. And the steps we took with the COVID relief packages in 2022, especially the American Rescue Plan this year, have gone a long way to help supply chain stakeholders from farmers all the way to grocers remain solvent and weather these very challenging times. Nevertheless, it's clear we still take food supply chains a long time to recover. I wanna make sure my constituents, especially those who struggle with hunger and food insecurity, are able to access and afford nutritious food. This takes on added meaning as we head into the holiday season with our families. To ensure that happens while also not shortchanging our farmers and frontline workers all along the food supply chain is very challenging, but it's a balance we must strike. One important thing we can do, and I'm seeing this happen with grocers and co-ops in my district, is buying and sourcing locally wherever possible. A silver lining of the pandemic has been heightened consumer interest in supporting local agriculture and producers with food choices. Mr. Ferreira, from your position with NGA, I'm curious if you're seeing your members increasingly working with local food producers and source from regionally connected distributors, and what can we do to help foster these relationships? Yes, Congresswoman, thank you for the question. Uh, again, this is an area that independent grocers really uh, take upon very seriously. It's an area how they differentiate from their chain competition. They are local. They know their local producers. They know the local farmers. And quite frankly, customers come to their stores to be able to source those local items uh, from local producers. But I think we really need to look at uh, the, the supply chain and ensure that those local producers continue to have a, ch have a chance. As we're going to continue to see more consolidation and more influence from the largest power buyers across this country, it's really important uh, that, that those local producers have an outlet for their products, and the independent grocer is the perfect outlet for that. Uh, we need to make sure that the industry is competitive uh, and that the antitrust laws are enforced so that those independent grocers can turn, continue to serve those communities like your district uh, and can serve those customers who need access to nutritious uh, and a wide variety of foods. 
Thank you so much. Now, shifting gears slightly, stakeholders in my district have been sharing with me examples of backlogs where food and value-added products themselves are not in short supply, but packaging for them is hard to come by. Mr. Durkin, could you comment on what challenge is your company or IDFA more broadly still seeing in terms of packaging shortages? And have you been developing strategies to mitigate packaging supply challenges or even minimize packaging as we move forward? Yeah, I mean, obviously there we've been, a, there isn't probably a input item that we haven't had a challenge with this year. So packaging is a, is a good example of that. We've had um, certain challenges where we've had to work with our suppliers to, um, to try to get that in place. Uh, uh, we've avoided certain things, but there has come down to situations just really in the last couple of weeks where we've had to change our production schedule because, because of delays in receiving our packaging. What we've also seen, as we mentioned earlier, my and panelists have also said this is the inflationary component of this as well. So all of our packaging costs have gone up. And to your point, we have been, have been and continue to work from a sustainability standpoint to reduce the amount of, uh, obviously, cardboard as an example and other packaging type materials. Uh, to make sure that we can uh, um, are corp good corporate citizens in that regard. But in the near term, uh, that, that availability is still a challenge and we're working with our suppliers to try to uh, eliminate that. Well, thank you. Uh, my time is coming to a close, but I'm very grateful to the panel and to everything uh, we're doing to work together to ensure that we have a safe, healthy, accessible, and affordable food supply chain for all Americans as we head into the holidays. So thank you very much. With that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you very much as well. Uh, now I recognize for five minutes the gentleman from South Dakota, Mr. Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And before I ask my questions, I just want to thank Mr. Durkin. Uh, sir, in your testimony, uh, you highlighted uh, the bill that I have with John Garamendi uh, related to the ocean shipping reforms that uh, haven't taken place for 30 years but are much needed. So I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, I, I want to uh, clearly these supply chain problems uh, are a terrible problem, and they are rippling throughout almost every segment of the American economy. It is good to hear a lot of agreement on some of the things that might help. Mr. Wells, in your testimony, you mentioned uh, the, the power of unlocking all of these safe 18, 19, 20-year-old drivers and how much that could alleviate uh, the shortage of drivers in the trucking industry. Mr. Ferreira, you noted that uh, every industry has these shortages, but that getting these young tr young truckers on the road uh, really would help. Uh, Mr. Sampson, uh, you estimated that uh, we're short 80,000 truck drivers, and you suggested that this pilot could unlock opportunities for ha perhaps as many as 3,000. Uh, you, you gentlemen probably know this, but uh, I'm leading a letter that has 55 signatories that is calling on DOT uh, to expedite uh, their reconsideration of a Trump administration rulemaking that would take just exactly the action that you gentlemen highlighted, uh, getting these safe drivers who are already driving intrastate loads into the interstate system. Uh, uh, what I want to ask of Mr. Wells, Mr. Ferreira, Mr. Sampson, what, what are your thoughts on the long term? And clearly the pilot is helpful. What are the prospects for a long-term reforms and to what extent could they help with our long-term supply chain weaknesses? Let's start with Mr. Wells. Yeah, I, this is a good start. Obviously, the, the earlier you get um, folks into the industry, the better chance you have for them to develop a career out of it. So while this is a short-term 
uh, fix. It, it also, I think, could yield long-term results in the fact that those those drivers, those those youngsters would tend to stay in the business longer. Um, so I, I think they're both part and parcel. Yeah, I think Mr. Sampson will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the average age that somebody joint begins driving truck is in their 30s. And so getting people connected younger uh, presumably would uh, would help them make better careers even earlier. Uh, Mr. Ferrer, any, any thoughts on long-term prospects? Yeah, absolutely. We need to get into high schools. We need to get into, not everyone is, is destined for college and everyone uh, wants to be um, you know, weighted down with college debt. And these are good paying. These are uh, great jobs, great careers. Careers. And let's get to these young folks early. Let's make sure they're exposed to these opportunities in their community uh, and give them the tools and resources they need at the right age so that we can get them involved early on and we can give them uh, the, the tools they need to be very successful in their careers. Yeah, because these truck drivers, this is the glue that holds the American economy together. Uh, let's get more safe drivers out on the road. Uh, your thoughts, sir? And first, I want to thank you for your uh, Shipping Act uh, legislation. We've been uh, intimately involved in that and believe it's going to have extraordinarily impact to, to kind of start to, to loosen the logjam. As far as the, the driver uh, issue goes, we've worked with FFA. They've got 700,000 folks that are part of FFA. We went out to their meeting, explained there's not 700,000 agriculture jobs, but there is jobs that go and, and work with agriculture, whether it's transportation or whether it's working in a warehouse, and giving them this viable, fantastic career option is a great way to, to kind of educate these young kids and get them into the industry. And so I think the Drive Safe Act is a foot in the door. I think we've got additional uh, opportunity that we can build on. But uh, as Mr. Ferrara said, getting into the high schools, getting into uh, these younger folks before they get too much into their uh, career option gives them a choice uh, that, that they wouldn't regularly have. Thank you very much, uh, gentlemen. Mr. Chairman, I just want to thank so many of my colleagues who have gotten on the Drive Safe letter that I'm circulating and so many that have gotten on the Ocean Shipping Reform Act that Mr. Garamendi and I are pushing. We can do so much more together yeah. than we can on our own. Thank you, sir, for your leadership. Absolutely. I yield back. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Johnson, and you're absolutely correct, and I want to commend you for the leadership you're providing on this issue as well. And now I recognize the gentlewoman from Illinois, Ms. Bustos, who is also the chair of the Subcommittee on General Farm Commodities and Risk Management. You are now recognized for five minutes, Ms. Bustos. All right, thank you so much, Mr. Chairman, and really appreciate you holding this very timely hearing today. I want to thank all of our witnesses for your testimony also. Uh, let me start by saying, Mr. Wells, uh, welcome uh, to a fellow Illinoisan. It's great to have you here with the Ag Committee. Um, now, in your testimony, you mentioned the dire state of disrepair that our rural roads and our bridges are in. And believe me, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, you know, I've got this 14 county, 7,000 square mile district. And when I'm driving, whether it's Joe Davis County to the far northwest corner, or whether it's down to Mercer County, one county south of where I am, I'm, I'm driving a lot of miles over these roads and these bridges and see the desperate need for revitalization. Um, but, you know, obviously it's not just you and I who experience how bad our hard infrastructure is. I hear it over and over again from our family farmers who are really just trying to get their goods from one end of the district to the other, from one part of the state to the other. 
um, or whether it's uh, to get the, their commodities over to the Mississippi River, um, whether they're crossing the river to go into Iowa, whether they're sending their commodities down the river through our locks and dam system. And really with each year that goes by, our roads and our bridges and our locks and our dams, um, you know, you, you, you look back, especially the locks and dams built during the Depression era, but everything's getting older and older, and it becomes that much more difficult for our ag producers to get their goods to market. Um, so, Mr. Wells, can you speak on the impact that the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, um, the, the $150 billion investment in that for roads and bridges or the nearly $20 billion investment in our waterway infrastructure, how, do, how will that impact our farmers in a region like ours, since you know Illinois well. Yeah, thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, we, we support that act. Um, you know, as, as you so eloquently stated, the roads and the bridges in Illinois, I, I travel a lot across the Midwest and, and, and other areas. And I have to say that uh, our, ours, uh, you know, win the prize potentially for being in disrepair. Um, as, as you mentioned, the, the locking system is critical um, to the to the flow of goods and services um, to our customers from fertilizers coming up river, um, as you know, to grains going back down river. So um, you know we're, we're we're supportive. We think that'll be a great start, and uh, we we appreciate the support uh, on the infrastructure. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about how these investments in our infrastructure will translate into food and agricultural supply? That the supply chain investments are in what we're facing with our supply chain issues right now. Yeah, it, you know, farming is very time uh, sensitive, right? And so as we ship products up river, it's, it's imperative that we have adequate locks and dams to get products uh, to the right place at the right time. Um, you know, some of our locks are are not very far away from a, a catastrophe that would just totally stop transportation on the river and would lead to critical shortages of fertilizer products and the same going down river. Um, we rely heavily on that river system um, to get products to the market, to get products to the Gulf. And so any breakdown in that system um, could be catastrophic to our producers and our farmer owners. Yeah. To the tune of billions of dollars. Um, let, let me, um, I've got a minute 20 left. Um, I'd like to take the rest of my time to address some troubling issues that were raised in, in testimony today. You know, I certainly agree that the issues that our entire ag and food supply chain face are serious. We, we know that we're seeing that. Look forward to continuing to work with, with those on this, this panel, uh, our witnesses, our colleagues on the ag committee, and of course, with the Biden administration to find solutions uh, in, a, in a timely and an effective matter, manner. But um, you know, we've heard from, from our tremendous panel of witnesses about a, a bunch of issues that our food and our ag supply chain face, including trucking, uh, that uh, uh, Mr. Johnson was just asking about shipping slowdowns uh, in global commerce, uh, increase in input and prices, uh, certain labor, the, the labor shortages that we're all hearing about. Um, I, 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 I do find um, an, an issue with um, the renewable fuel standard uh, part that was, was talked about earlier. I think it's short-sighted, um, intentionally undercutting demand for domestically produced biofuels would pull the, the rug out from beneath our, our corn and our soybean growers and create a whole new cascade of supply chain issues in our food, fuel, and fiber sectors. So um, I just want to say this committee needs to focus on solutions, 
for the wide array of issues that, that we're discussing today, rather than on stopgap measures that could end up doing more harm than good. And I just wanted to make sure that I address that. Um, with that, with my 11 uh, seconds over, uh, I will yield back. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Bustadosa. Now, I recognize a gentleman from Indiana, Mr. Baird. You're recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Chairman Scott and uh, Ranking Member Thompson. I really appreciate uh, having this hearing. And, you know, um, I really appreciate um, all the witnesses here. I mean, you, you bring the ideas uh, and you, you cite the main parts of our supply chain that have been disrupted in the last year or so. And so that is really beneficial to us trying to make decisions. So I thank each and every one of you. Uh, for being here and sharing your concepts uh, with that. Uh, but Mr. Swalls, uh, in your comments, you mentioned increasing costs and shortage of inputs like fertilizers and crop production tools, and I can appreciate that. Uh, these disruptions are very concerning to me, uh, particularly um, as I similarly continue to hear from our farmers in my district who are concerned about the increasing input costs and the decreasing margins and unfortunately uh, compounding the supply chain troubles uh, we now hear that the administration and the epa have begun revoking some of the key crop protection tools and the pesticides for the u.s agriculture and so as mr wells mentioned in his testimony in august the epa made an overly conservative decision to revoke the approval of um, chlorpyr or FOS. Uh, for use on food products. And unfortunately, the decision was made despite the agency's own findings and that the product does not pose potential risk for concern and backed up by U.S. Court of Appeals ruling. So, Mr. Swalls, can you, uh, can you share your perspective about, and this is just one, one example, um, but how the uh, impact of, of regulating this pesticide as well as others uh, will further compound the supply chain issues for producers. Do you care to elaborate on that? Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, chlorpyrifos is um, a very important chemical used in the ag industry from uh, pecans to onions to corn, cabbage. It's widely used and has been, I think, for 30 or 40 years. Uh, the main food my family eats is, comes from, the, our, from our farm. And chlorpyrifos is a chemical that we do use. It's crop protected that we've been using for years and years. So I obviously do not um, feel like it poses a potential risk of concern um, in the end of the fact that my family is eating the um, food produced on the farm that's using chlorpyrifos. Now I do err on the side of caution, but I follow the science and the research. Um, for our company, we constantly run trials on different seeds, growing practices, and um, crop protection products. So any changes made by the EPA uh, would need to be trialed and tested on the farm level to see what the, the result of those changes would have on efficacy, crop quality, nutrition, uh, and yields before we would uh, need to make a transition to any other um, uh, crop protection products. So I appreciate your comments, and you know I'm a very science-based uh, individual, uh, and uh, think that's important in the decision-making process. I'm not sure uh, that we used uh, the appropriate science to make those kind of decisions, and so 
Uh, if anyone else, uh, anyone of the other witnesses uh, would like to make a comment in this regard, I think I've got about a minute and 20 seconds left, and so you, you can make your comments. Well, I would just add that, you know, farm plans are made well in advance of the growing season. So growers are sitting down and making those plans today. Uh, and so having consistent science and risk-based uh, methods of evaluating those products to ensure we have a steady supply and access to them is really uh, critically important. Uncertainty, marketplace disruptions that just make it very difficult to plan. And in some cases, there may not be alternate products that fit the need uh, that the growers have for the product that was uh, that was evaluated and potentially canceled. Thank you. I got about 30 seconds left. Anyone else? If not, I really appreciate uh, your thoughts and your perspective, and I appreciate you being here testifying to this committee. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Bird. And now I recognize the gentleman from Arizona, Mr. O'Halloran. You're now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman Scott and Ranking Member Thompson for holding this important meeting today. And I, I was sitting here looking at my remarks and I thought, what a surprise. We're, we're surprised that we don't know that our ports haven't been in good shape for the last 20 years. Are we surprised that uh, uh, the dr truck drivers across this country, have been, we've had a shortage even before the pandemic? Uh, what else have we been surprised about? That our roads are, are not in good shape? Uh, we as a Congress, we as a country have to start looking forward aggressively into making sure we don't deal with just crisis, but looking forward into our future. Uh, the pandemic has uh, tested our food supply chain, thanks to the work of many companies and their essential workers. Uh, we were able to get through that. Uh, there were some stock shelves that weren't stocked in a while. Uh, we also brought the, had to bring the National Guard in, but it happened. And, it, and people did not have to starve to death in our country. I'm concerned that if we do not address the potential choke points that have emerged in our nation's food supply uh, in the coming months, uh, we remain at risk for potential shortages during future natural emergencies. And also, it's not just about food. It's about everything that goes into the core of allowing farms and the agricultural industry to work. The pandemic showed that our supply chain is overly de dependent on foreign adversaries like China. Moving forward, we need to ensure that our supply chain is secure to ensure that we do not see disruptions and delays in getting Americans the food and other necessities that we depend upon. I'm also very concerned about the increased food costs uh, we are seeing. This impacts families, it impacts restaurants, it impacts the fabric of our communities. These problems are compounded for Americans who live on tribal reservations or in rural communities. Uh, Congresswoman Bustos hi highlighted the the cost of uh, the roadway system, the cost of traveling right now because the gas prices is, is a tremendous cost to rural areas and tribal lands. For instance, nearly 25% of Native Americans are faced with food insecurity. 15% of rural Americans are, uh, are food insecure as well. Uh, board price pressures will only further harm these rural and tribal communities of which most of Arizona's first district is comprised of. Uh, it already is struggling to assess healthy and nutritious food 
to feed their families. Americans who live in rural and tribal communities are already prone to pre-existing health disparities like diabetes. Access to high quality food is absolutely critical in these areas and I would like to work with the panel and some other solutions on these issues. Mr. Durkin, Southern Arizona has a number of dairy farms and I know that I know supply many American dairy producers. Can you talk through some of the supply chain issues that you have, are seeing in the entire dairy industry from the farmer to the end consumer? Yeah. Well, the supply chain uh, uh, issues that we've talked about, uh, I again express all the, the perspectives that my fellow panelists have had. Everything from the trucking side to we've had issues just recently where we've had to divert some milk coming into our plants because of unavailability to have truck drivers uh, available. You take the truck driver availability and then the equipment unavailability per, per se, they're all interrelated when even you then get to the port issue that I've, I've focused on heavily at this hearing. Um, when, when that equipment gets tied up, that uh, causes backlogs in the entire industry, so it follows through the entire supply chain. So whether it's an equipment issue, a personnel issue, um, that all that up, it just it just is a circular thing that you don't seem to be able to get out of. So the issues that we've talked about and the solutions that my fellow panelists have also talked about and myself are clear, clearly needed, needed now. Are you surprised at all that we're in this situation based on the years of uh, addressing uh, the import-export markets and, and not doing it correctly, and, and also the uh, state of the infrastructure in our country? Um, so I would say I'm surprised to a point that it's as, as deep of a crisis that it's, uh, it's actually at. We've uh, started to raise the issue back at the first of the year, um, probably even a little bit before that, as we started to see things happening. So, um, But I would argue we're at a point where uh, I know things were talked about, and I was on a panel discussion with USDEC just a couple weeks ago on this specific issue, and they had the, the head of the Long Beach Port on that panel, and actually he had recommended 24-7 actually back a couple of years ago. So um, this is something I think that we foresaw coming in. Obviously, nobody saw a pandemic that was about to hit us. So that clearly has exacerbated the issue. But um, this, certainly there were warning signs that this was on its way. Thank you very much. And Mr. Chairman, I yield. Thank you, Mr. Halloran. And now I recognize the gentleman from Ohio, Mr. Balderson. You're now recognized for five minutes. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. And I want to thank all of you for being here today. I want to thank uh, uh, Chairman Scott and Ranking Member Thompson for doing this uh, important hearing. Um, my direction goes towards uh, Mr. Sampson. And Mr. Sampson, I hope everyone participating in this hearing understand just how important the Dry Safe Act is, uh, as it seriously addressed both the supply chain crisis and the ongoing shortage of qualified truck drivers. I was proud to offer this bill as an amendment during the Transportation Infrastructure Committee's markup of their transportation bill last Congress and also this Congress. It's clear that the trucking industry needs our help but I'm hoping you can touch on what ATA and the industry is doing to recruit and retain truckers on their own. And I know you've spoken a little bit about it, but if you could just give a couple other things, that would be great. Thank you, Congressman, and thank you for your support uh, of Drive Safe, something that we've been working uh, closely with uh, your office and, and others uh, to try to recruit uh, these, these younger folks into the industry. Uh, 
I think we've, we've touched on it a little bit today, but we're trying to incentivize not only new drivers to come in, uh, but also retain. And, and the chairman noted uh, the high turnover rate at the beginning of the hearing. Uh, we've got uh, benefits, we've got higher uh, salaries, we've got flexibility. We're really attempting to educate those that are coming into the industry how great of a career, potential career that this is. And so we're working closely with them in order to do that. Something we haven't touched on today is a significant uh, DMV backlog of, of CDLs that we're trying to uh, loosen up and, and, and get that process started uh, to get it uh, uh, back operating at, at the top efficiency. And so that's another piece that, that we have not quite touched on, but I think is very important here. Uh, as that's, well. that's great that you did that, and, and we're going to touch on that in just a second. But I do want to do a follow-up and just make sure everyone is aware. The Wall Street Journal uh, did a video uh, on their website yesterday that discussed the benefits and bonuses that trucking companies are offering to new and existing employees, uh, To and I encourage everyone to watch that. Mr. Sampson, and as you just started the state there, uh, during the onset of the pandemic, the Trump administration acted quickly to put in place a variety of waivers for CDL and CLP holders to ensure trucks were able to deliver critical supplies such as PPE and medical equipment and food on time. Can you discuss some of the waivers you felt had the biggest impact in ensuring timely delivery of goods over the, over the pandemic? Of course, yeah, no, we, we had a, a handful of ones that were very positive towards the industry uh, on attaining CDLs. Uh, there were certain things that were waived from the DMV standpoint that allowed us to get uh, quicker access to those. And now since then, we have uh, uh, continued to, to see the, the backlog start to pile up. But during the process, we were able to attain CDLs a little bit more efficiently. Uh, some of the other uh, declarations that were put out there. One of them, of course, was on the weight side. They were allowed, uh, provided the states to uh, increase weights to get certain products uh, from, from A to B, which, uh, of course, with a driver shortage, with an equipment shortage, that allowed us to increase our productivity uh, over, over the course of, of the, uh, the pandemic as well. Okay. And my follow-up to you, um, do you think extending some of these waivers through the duration of the supply chain crisis would be helpful? I do, and I think my colleague, Mr. Ferraro, would agree, especially on the, the foodstuff side of things, the livestock side of things. We know we've had a, a gas and oil issue as well, and so far throughout the pandemic, it seems like these have been extraordinarily helpful for the industry and also come across as very safe and efficient so far as well. Thank you for your responses, Mr. Sampson. Mr. Chairman, I yield back my remaining time. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> And now I recognize this gentleman from California, Mr. Garbershaw, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to all the witnesses uh, being here today. COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted every aspect of our lives and has created supply chain disruptions, as many of you have touched on, including container shortages and shipping delays. The agriculture sector is especially impacted by these delays, including producers in my Central Coast District. As chair of the Transportation and Infrastructure Subcommittee on Coast Guard and Maritime Transportation, I am actively exploring ways to address this issue with my colleagues. Mr. Schwalz, have you 
been forced to take on certain costs or losses associated with crops arriving in poor condition due to delays and congestion? And what types of policies from the USDA or congressional action would be helpful from your vantage point to address these added challenges in the market for fresh, frozen, and processed fruits and vegetables? Um, thank you. Yes, sir. Um, we we have a lot of challenges with um, the supply chain that has caused disruption and caused uh, loss of crop and yield. Um, and when you when you consider the fact that all of the agricultural costs uh, go in on an acre basis, and all of the returns uh, come back on a by the box or by the ton or uh, whatever so whatever particular commodity it may be. Um, so it's the input costs are, are pretty much identical regardless of the yields. So when we're able to have a, a better crop utilization, uh, it obviously it lowers the impact of the cost of, of the product that's being grown and also the amount of land that's required to grow that crop. So we think that there's, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity looking forward for food security and safety uh, um, for the American public, uh, for you utilize um, different things like fresh frozen, fresh prepared, uh, where we can add shelf life and um, stability to the food supply chain. Um, many of the commodities, especially the fruits and uh, vegetable industry, those are seasonal commodities. Uh, so they're not readily available. Um, someone was speaking earlier, uh, the Congress lady, I believe, about um, buying local and, and locally sourced. And that, that is true, but there's a, a tremendous amount of time of the, the year where products are not available local. They're only available in the areas where obviously they have a growing season at that time. And the crop utilization during those times could be spread out a lot to cover the, the rest of the year because there are a lot of waste that goes in as we're in a, a situation where essentially unless the product is flawless, it's basically not being able to use on a retail basis. And so we're having to find subvert areas to use that, such as food service, which we all know that that had a massive increase during COVID and it's that, that industry is still greatly off today. Um, so we, we need to relook really at how are we utilizing uh, the, the products that are being grown now, the crops that are being grown and how to further increase the shelf life and the, so that we can take a approach that gives a greater security to food stability for uh, the people of the nation. Does the gentleman have additional <clears throat> questions? Uh, yes, I'm sorry, I, I was muted. I just wanted to say thank you to Mr. Durkin for meeting with me this week, and I appreciate him being a, a witness today. Mr. Durkin, I know you've already addressed um, uh, these questions, but if you could expand on them a little bit more, I would appreciate it. How long has ongoing pork congestion affected food and agriculture trade involving either U.S. imports or exports from your vantage point? Yeah. 
I think the, uh, the impact is, as I mentioned just the, uh, a few minutes ago, it's gone back. We noticed the increase back in the late, what I would call late 2020, when it started to really see the impact uh, and really became acute right at the end of the year to the beginning of the year of 2021 and has gotten continually to get, get what I call worse and um, maintaining. The unfortunate part about this is given the current situation from a, from a, from a operating from a, whether from a shipping reform, the things that we're looking to do in the Shipping Reform Act, as well as I know the 24-7, we're six to 12 months out before any of those things will have an impact on our ability to, to reduce the backlog in those ports. That's the concern. So my, my, my hope is with the committee and obviously Congress is that we can act some of these things either through other types of uh, uh, bills or executive orders or what we need to do to address the situation immediately. Can you also touch on how your, your company has been personally impacted uh, with increases in transportation costs and how it's affecting your market share in. in other countries? Yep. We're actually seeing that, as we talked about, millions of dollars. Uh, we saw in 2021 a $25 million increase in terms of our freight and transportation costs. That's going to be another $25 million going into 22. Throw on top of that the potential loss from a customer standpoint, given the inability to get some of our products to our customers, that's the concern. So we have short-term abilities on the freight and storage, the longer-term impact to not only us, but the rest of the dairy industry on the ability to losing, losing customers to potentially other dairy exporting countries. The gentleman's time has expired. I now recognize the gentleman from Texas, Mr. Cloud. You are now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I do appreciate your comments uh, at the beginning of this committee to highlight that we are leading the world in ag and uh, that we have a, a, a great nation. We certainly do. Um, you know, the U.S. ag industry leads the world really in innovation. Over the last years, we've seen the inputs decrease and the outputs increase. That's a, a wonderful thing, uh, not only for the industry, but just for the world's food supply at large. In spite of that, we are looking at what some people have called the most expensive Thanksgiving ever. Um, Mr. Schwalz, you mentioned in your statement some of the costs that you're seeing. Could you kind of uh, relay that to us again? some of the costs you're seeing in, in, in what you're dealing with? Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Um, increase in cost. Um, the, the, the main components, we, we have three essential costs in the fruit and vegetable industry from, from our perspective. We have the growing and production costs, then we have the packing costs, and, and, and then, of course, we have the transportation costs. The vast majority of uh, the products that we sell to retailers, we deliver. So we do absorb an, uh, a tremendous amount of that cost. A lot of the, the products we're selling are on contract or programs where the prices are locked in. Um, and we take into account the, the cost of the transportation prior to that. But there's no way to track those numbers now. And so we're at, we have to absorb the increase in the transportation costs. Right. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, so we're absorbing the transportation costs. Then as far as the, the field input costs, you know, fertilizers being removed, we had another 6% increase, I believe it was yesterday, on fertilizers. Those are currently up 35% year to date. 
Um, they right. crop products up 25%. The fuel being a massive uh, increase for us at 48%. So we, we did yeah. have, we, we need some significant areas, uh, obviously, and the majority of this stuff is affected directly by transportation. If we could you have- You mentioned some, fertilizers, 35%, crop protection products, 25%, fuel, 48%. Uh, mulch and drip tape, 35%, packing supplies, 30%, refrigerants, 20%, freight, uh, 40%. Um, it, it occurs to me that the vast majority of those things, probably 80% of it are, are more are either products or byproducts of the oil and gas industry. Uh, and we have seen, you know, for the last few months, really an attack against the oil and gas industry here in the United States. While promoting it overseas, even begging OPEC to produce more. Um, I, I think that's kind of a, a backwards approach to it. It's important that we, as we continue to move towards a, a cleaner air, cleaner water, brighter future, that we, uh, we do so in a, a sensible and responsible way and not one that increases food costs for our families. Um, I, I noticed, I wanted to talk a little bit about the trucking issue. Uh, it's been talked about a lot, but one little thing I wanted to key in on is that I noticed that uh, California, uh, they have implemented a law of restricting gig workers and imp independent contractors. This has notably, uh, my understanding, has reduced the, the, the workforce, uh, specifically truckers in California. Um, they're also considering uh, moving everything away from diesel trucks in, in short order. I'm curious about what this would do. Uh, right now we have a major federal investment in the ports in California. We have a major federal investment in the highways under the assumption that we're gonna be using these ports, not only for the region of California, but uh, as a gateway to the food supply and resources uh, for the entire nation. Um, and it's curious to me that uh, California would would present a stranglehold on the U.S. economy in that way, and that might be something worth the discussion uh, later on. Um, but I wanted to to ask. Uh, I think Mr. Cinco, you had mentioned in your testimony um, the vaccine mandates and and some of the issues revolved in that when it came to to workforce. Right now, uh, we have a number of issues with workforce. Some have been discussed already. Some of the policies implemented uh, under COVID, but have kind of outlived their their usefulness uh, in keeping workers at home. Could you speak to to that, please? We are very fragile with our workforce right now. Um, we have shut down lines specifically to. When you're short people, we just scavenge lines together and shut lines down. I think if these mandates come into effect now, before the holidays, it's gonna make it even worse. This is, like you said, the most expensive Thanksgiving in history and to make bread and buns and and things to, for actual Thanksgiving, stuffing bread, stuff like that, we're not gonna be able to produce a lot of that product if they have these mandates because we, like every other industry, have 40, so 40 to 50 percent of our workforces uh, vaccinated and the rest of them are not. And as I've heard before, I don't think there's going to be a lot of people running to go get vaccinated if you get it mandated. So that's just going to cut into our workforce and make the fragileness expire. 
Thank you. The gentleman's uh, time has expired. <clears throat> I now recognize the gentleman from California, <clears throat> Mr. Harder, recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I want to begin by thanking Chairman Scott and Ranking Member Thompson for hosting this hearing on the critical issues around our food supply chain. Uh, and thanks also to all of our witnesses for, for joining us. I represent California's Central Valley, where the fruit and nut basket of the world, and we make our living selling our produce in every corner of the globe. And that means we actually have to be able to actually get our products there uh, so they could be consumed uh, around the globe. So today I, I'd like to focus my remarks and questions primarily on the portion of the supply chain that's been top of mind for every one of my producers, processors, and distributors. Uh, for the last few months, I've been closely monitoring the disaster uh, unfolding at our ports. Uh, in two months uh, alone last year, shippers rejected more than 177,000 crates of American products, uh, instead sending empty shipping containers back to China to be filled with Chinese goods. Uh, when I talk to farmers and ranchers in my community, they tell me it's taking weeks longer than normal to get their products onto a truck to the port and onto a ship. Each one of those delays hits their bottom lines at a time when they simply can't afford it. Uh, and to make matters worse, Ports like the one in Long Beach are seeing huge backups in part because they've got local rules that prioritize beachfront views over actually getting crates in and out of the door every day. All of that together means the farmers and ranchers in my community, really the backbone of our entire economy, are losing money every single day. When the supply chain fails, it hits our community first uh, and it hits us the hardest. Uh, that's why I'm working with my colleagues and Representative Garamendi on his bipartisan bill to update our global shipping regulations to combat China's influence on international shipping, as well as working with the letter of my Ag Committee colleague, uh, Mr. Dusty Johnson, that urges the Department of Transportation to implement the congressionally authorized under 21 commercial driver pilot program to get more truckers onto the roads. Uh, so my, my first question is for, for Mr. Durkin. Uh, Mr. Durkin, as the, as the president and CEO of Laprino Foods, which I know well, given the, their, their presence in, in my district, it'd be helpful to hear directly about how the dairy industry specifically has been impacted with the ports and supply chain backups in California. Uh, what's been the biggest challenge and, and where exactly can Congress be a, a better partner to you? Yeah. The biggest challenge, obviously, is getting the, all of our uh, products loaded onto a ship and getting out to where the getting out to all the uh, countries and that we to our customers where we need to have that put. Uh, from a, everything from having the right, as we talked about, from a trucking standpoint, getting it to the to and from the ports. Um, but when we have bookings that get rolled multiple times, as I put in my testimony. And one, as an example, we had over 100 bookings this past year that were rolled 17 times. That created a five-month delay, not just weeks. Um, at this point, we'd be happy with weeks, but months it actually really turns into significant issues for not only Leprino, really the dairy industry as whole. And um, I, know, I know that uh, working with California dairies, who surprise, surprise a lot of our um, milk in the state of California, they're running into the same issues as well. So clearly the Shipping Reform Act and what it's done in terms of the, um, putting guidance over the empty containers that go back, obviously in the demerge fees and excess charges that happen would be significant and a big help for uh, both dairy companies as well as all of agriculture. So we're excited about that and anything we can do on the 24-7. But our biggest concern uh, really is the timing of this. We, as I mentioned earlier, our, our we've noticed this issue back in January where it really got to be a significant issue. 
we're now really getting to port where this is almost a year later and in terms of this. So anything we can do to get that Shipping Reform Act passed quickly uh, would be helpful. Thank you. I agree. Our urgency is is imperative here. It's already taken a lot longer than it, than it should have. Uh, thank you for that. My, my second question is for Mr. Sampson. Mr. Sampson, I'm, I'm very glad you're here to share your testimony and demonstrate how important it is not just to, to grow and sell our ag commodities, but to get them from point A to point B and, and beyond. Anybody who lives in our area and, and drives down I-5 or, or Highway 99 every day, knows how important trucking is to our region. Um, I, I've heard from you that we have 80,000 uh, drivers short of where we need to be uh, right now. In my district, we have programs that actually train students so they can graduate directly from high school into the trucking business. Um, but uh, they can't actually take a lot of jobs uh, because they're they're not eligible until they're 21. I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense. As I said, I'm working with my colleague, Dusty Johnson, to try to make sure that we're reforming these federal rules. But I'd, I'd love to hear from you about what else we can do in Congress to address uh, the shortage that we're seeing um, in, the, in the trucking industry. To give you a quick example, and thank you, Congressman, uh, out of your district, we have a handful of uh, great members out of the Central Valley. And earlier this uh, summer, when they started harvesting carrots and other uh, produce out of the Southern Valley or the Central Valley, uh, they were running into, of course, the driver shortage piece and getting the products harvested into the processing plant. And so we were working with uh, Governor Newsom and uh, Caltrans and uh, this body as well to try to see if we could get some increase in truck weights just until we got through that harvest period. And so we constantly are trying to focus on what can we do in the near term uh, as we know these these commodities are, are are either harvested in short order or they're going to be tilled back under and, and left behind. And so uh, we try to figure out how we can best focus on these as, as we're moving forward. And, and we were able to do that uh, outside of your district as well. Thank you. Thank the you. gentleman's time has expired. <clears throat> now I recognize the gentleman from Iowa Mr. Fenstra for five minutes. Thank you so much, Chairman Scott, and thank you, uh, Ranking Member Thompson, for holding this hearing today on the national food supply chain and the concerns that we have. Uh, I represent the 4th District in Iowa. This is probably one of the largest ag industries uh, in our nation. We're number one or two, whether it comes to soybean and, and uh, uh, corn production. And with that, I'd like to address a, a concern uh, regarding fertilizer costs. This has been brought up already, but I'd like to ask uh, Mr. Wells, uh, some of our farmers who have been able to guarantee fertilizer availability for next planting season have also reported and uh, prices being quoted to, quoted to them that are six times higher uh, than 2021. Mr. Wells, can you shed any light on the main factors that are driving this dramatic increase? And is there any way that we can mitigate this as we move forward? Yeah, speaking specifically to a couple of products, nitrogen and, and phosphate, um, the, the, one of the feedstocks and one of the catalysts to make the products are natural gas. And of course, um, everyone knows the impacts uh, to the energy complex. We've talked about that. Um, natural gas has skyrocketed in price and it directly impacts the prices of, of those particular products. And so um, if, you, if you take into account weather, uh, Hurricane Ida shut down a significant amount of production in the state of Louisiana, which uh, took tons out of the marketplace. Uh, transportation costs 
um, getting things in a timely fashion. It's, it's just been, I, I hate to use the word perfect storm, but it's, it's been a perfect storm of high input costs, high transportation costs, shutdowns. Um, there have been a number of turnarounds related to COVID that were delayed that took tons out of the market. So there's a number of factors that have yeah. led to the increase in prices. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what we're seeing. My, my greatest fear is what this does for the future. You know, when, when you have uh, our producers putting in their corn and soybeans uh, this spring, you know, obviously that input cost goes directly after them. But it also then uh, hopefully will, through the commodity prices, will get will, will increase. And then that cost gets passed on to the consumer. Um, do you also see these mitigating factors? I mean, is this a concern for you also? Uh, and what you see as we move forward in, in that food supply chain. Can you state that again, please? Yeah, I, I was just wondering, uh, I mean, if you look at future yields and future crop production and things like that, I mean, is there a concern when we have uh, such increased costs when it comes to fertilizer? Yeah, yeah, obviously, anytime you have dramatic increases in costs for the, for the farmer, yeah. um, it leads to, to widespread concern. Um, you know, farmers, as has been stated, uh, you know, buy at retail and sell at wholesale. So they're kind of caught in the middle of all that. And so they have to take prices, uh, accept prices given to them on the retail side. Yep. So yeah, we're, we're concerned about that. Yeah, it's, it's very significant. I agree. Uh, I want to address a, a comment made earlier by Mr. Cinco uh, regarding renewable fuel standards and biofuels impacting uh, soybean oil prices and avail availability. You know, you think about over the last decade, soybean production and, and processing capacity has grown dramatically significantly. In fact, uh, October, the WASDE report forecast soybean production at 4.4 billion bushels. That's up 74 million bushels uh, from the year before based on the higher yields. Uh, while uh, our farmers are projected to produce a record crop this year, the biodiesel and renewable diesel industry are using approximately the same amount of soybean oil that they did uh, compared to last year at this time. So my question, uh, Mr. Cinco, is were your comments sub subjective? I mean, it seems like you're going after the biofuel industry. And uh, I, I, I would need to ask you that question. Why? Uh, actually, so the way it is for me, I buy soybean oil twofold. I buy it on the market commodity. And then there's the basis, which is the transportation, uh, refining and all of that. Last November, typically for us, it's a dime a pound. It went to 54 cents. You cannot get quotes from vendors that you don't do business with to competitive quotes because they don't have the capacity to do that. They are telling us the shortage will be the next six months for sure. The uh, refining capacity is at a premium right now. The Refiners are actually gonna build more capacity, but it's not supposed to go online till 2023. They're telling us that it's next year is gonna be a terrible year. Wow. My prices of soybean oil have tripled from I, I just thank you for those comments, but I, I, I see it a different way. I mean, uh, biofuels, obviously, just like everybody else, they have dramatic input, cost, transportation, all these things. And I, I just don't think that we should need to uh, wreck an industry that is providing uh, a great, uh, uh, you know. I'm not saying wreck it. I'm saying delay it. Yep. Because right now, there are companies that I'm hearing that have booked their soybean oil for the quantities they need for a quarter and they want it on June 3rd, but it's not showing up till June 6th because 
There's no drivers, the refining capacity. Yep. They're, they're, well, I, I appreciate your comments, uh, Mr. Single. Thank you so much. And these are all big issues. And I'm obviously very passionate about, about the ag industry and how it affects Iowa. Thank you, uh, uh, Mr. Chair, and I go back. Thank you. Uh, now I recognize the gentlewoman from Iowa, Ms. Axney, for five minutes. Thank you, uh, Chairman Scott. And um, I want to echo the words of my fellow colleague from Iowa, Representative Feenstra, uh, in, in talking about our farmers. So before I get to my questions for our witnesses here, I'd like to ask for unanimous consent to submit an op-ed from American Soybean Association CEO, Stephen Sensky. Chairman? Without objection. Without objection. I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Sensky's op-ed corrects the record on some misconceptions about soybean oil production. I want to let folks know, as uh, Representative Feenstra said, our farmers are working hard to harvest a record soybean crop this year, producing more soybeans with less land and energy use, and will continue to meet the needs of consumers to feed and fuel the world. And now the new markets for domestic uh, soybean oil are translating directly into new investments in soybean crush capacity across the Midwest which means more money in rural economies like those here in Iowa and more return for Iowa farmers and more protein and oil for use by America's food processors. So uh, any suggestion to reduce the amount of biodiesel blended in our nation's fuel supply isn't based on facts and will work against, unfortunately, our farmers, our rural communities and our climate objectives. Now, I'm thankful to the chairman for holding this hearing as the effects of COVID-19 pandemic continue to disrupt our nation's supply chain, leading to bottlenecks and of course de delays and uncertainty. As consumer habits have shifted in response to the pandemic, we've seen a drastic increase of imports into the United States, which has been overwhelming our supply chain and exacerbating infrastructure issues. I strongly urge my colleagues to support the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act because it's a bipartisan legislation to help us provide significant and long overdue investments in our crumbling infrastructure. And as many of our witnesses have testified, this legislation will address years of underinvestment and allow us to meet the needs of the future. So I appreciate the president's uh, leadership in developing the Build Back Better agenda um, to help grow our economy and create good paying jobs. Our witnesses have also pointed to specific legislation before this Congress that will address specific issues within the supply chain, and I look forward to hearing more about that. <clears throat> so, Mr. Durkin, my question, as my state of Iowa is our nation's second largest exporter of ag products, I'm concerned about how some foreign-owned shipping companies are essentially dictating trade. They're bringing in imports into our ports, but yet they're leaving with empty ships. Um, without our products being exported on them. This is very contrary to standard uh, import-export trade. Uh, can you elaborate on your testimony on how the Ocean Shipping Reform Act can address this problem and other solutions that we might act on here in Congress? Yeah, uh, two of the key, key components of that shipping uh, reform bill. One is that it would put a limit on terms of the empty containers that are going back. 
there was always a portion of that that did go back given the import-export imbalance, but that number was at around 10% uh, prior to COVID, and now we're, we're at 70%. So there clearly is uh, an issue that's been that has kind of escalated to a point uh, where, where I call this obviously as a crisis. So, and then the second point of that is when those orders get rolled and um, we lose those bookings, as I mentioned, there's uh, fees from a demerge fees and other excess charges that uh, us as well as other companies have to uh, ha have to uh, handle. And I know this uh, that's a big component, a second component of the Shipping Reform Act that would help. And again, I can't emphasize enough how quickly uh, if we can get this thing, we get it kind of. I know it has bipartisan support how quickly we can get this bill passed and approved, and I think that would be a big help. Thank you for that, and um, really appreciate that. Now, one, second question, Mr. Sampson, you noticed in your testimony that trucking industry needs about 80,000 more drivers to meet demand. I'll tell you, I always have Iowans in my office on this issue. We know these are tough jobs, but they're critical to our nation. So can you expand uh, to us here what the industry is able to do to recruit workers so that we can better support those efforts? We're understanding that there is an aging workforce. We're understanding that uh, COVID had a, a strain on the industry, an industry that really uh, showed up and, and kind of provided that they were, they were heroes during the COVID pandemic. What we're trying to do is go out and recruit younger drivers. We're trying to diversify the workforce. We're trying to bring in those from the military. Uh, women in trucking has been a big piece as well. That percentage continues to grow, uh, incentivized through uh, uh, monetary or benefits or flexibility. And so there's multiple things that we're trying to focus on to make sure uh, that we get these drivers into the industry, but then we also keep them uh, as well. We retain those employees as well. Thank you. The general lady's time has expired. I now recognize the general lady from Illinois, Ms. Miller, for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman. I have a question for Mr. Ferrara. Mr. Ferrara, in your testimony, you mentioned that you have advocated for the government to help your member stores attract talent. How do you or do you know offhand how many employees your member stores lost due to overburdensome, unconstitutional vaccine and mask mandates? And furthermore, do you think it would be helpful for the federal government to halt federal COVID vaccine mandates and mask mandates? Well, Congressman, first thing I would say is, you know, we do as an industry support vaccines. We were a big part of helping uh, get those vaccines into communities and, of course, prioritizing our workers. The concerns that we have, uh, you know, for any mandate, particularly going into the holidays, are one, how is this going to be implemented? Uh, the impact, of course, it will have on our workforce. Uh, who's responsible for testing? How are we accessing those test, tests? Who's paying for the test? And then, of course, the, the, the penalties that these businesses uh, could be faced upwards of $13,000 uh, in OSHA penalties. So uh, that is obviously a concern uh, up and down the, the full supply chain. Uh, I think you know, our industry, again, uh, has been very proactive in working toward incentivizing and, and helping get uh, those workers vaccinated, done clinics at their stores, at their distribution facilities. And uh, we're committed to continuing to do those. Okay, thank you. And Mr. Cinco, in your testimony, you mentioned that an experienced workforce is leaving your industry at an alarming rate due to issues facing the world, new issues. Can you tell me how the COVID-19 vaccine mandates and mass mandates have impacted your workforce? And um, also, 
Can you tell me how unemployment benefits, which have not had work requirements since March of 2020, how have they impacted your workforce? So the mask mandate issue, as I mentioned before, we're, we're very fragile with the amount of people that we have. And if the, mas- if the masks and everything keep getting mandated, we're going to have less people showing up because there's 45 to 50% of us are vaccinated. Um, we're not against vaccines, but we can't force it on our employees. Uh, at the holidays, it will be a complete catastrophe for us if the mandates are there. As for the unemployment uh, benefits, I think it affected us because the, the wage difference between somebody who wasn't working and the actual pay that they would get if they were working didn't seem like it was fair. So the difference between the two didn't measure up to what they were actually having to do in, in the bakery. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. And Mr. Wells, China is the leading producer of agriculture chemicals with, and now with the ongoing trade, economic and defense tensions between our two countries, would you please describe the risks that U.S. farmers face from disruptions on critical production tools, and then also how can we begin to mitigate against this risk? That helps. Uh, Disruption in these critical production tools can, you know, obviously lead to delayed planning. Um, if, If crop protection products are late to the market, it can obviously impact the control of weeds and weeds compete with crops and can reduce yields. And so, you know, from multiple standpoints, it can lead to reduced productivity and reduced profitability by extension for farmers. And it could also lead to higher food prices if if less is produced. And so um, that would be most impactful, obviously, on people that Mm -hmm. can less least afford it. Um, You know, I think we can mitigate the risk by crafting policies that promote trade and ensure regulatory certainty Um, for those who produce these pesticide products. Um, The importance of good trade relationships can't be overlooked, as well as the certainty of the US EPA's regulatory approval process that I touched on earlier. So those are some things to mitigate and some of the impacts they could have. Okay, thank you. And I represent a highly productive uh, district in Illinois, the Illinois 15. We produce a lot of soybeans and actually um, my family, we are soybean producers and um, it's actually, this this is an alarming situation that we're in. Thank you so much. Thank you. The gentlewoman from Washington is now recognized, Ms. Schreier for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, supply chain dysfunction uh, made worse by the pandemic was first brought to my attention uh, over a year ago by hay farmers in Ellensburg, Washington. Um, Since then, I've been in frequent communication with growers and exporters all around the 8th District and even around the country about these issues that they're facing. And I'm hearing it from my colleagues as well as it's become more apparent to others. For more than a year, these farmers have shared with me how pandemic uh, conditions, but also 
also the behavior, the really bad behavior of foreign owned shipping carriers, you could almost refer to them as a cartel, are hurting their industries. They're threatening export markets. They're threatening relationships that have been built up over decades with foreign purchasers. And the cost and the availability of transportation to both domestic and export markets continue to be a big challenge for wheat, cherry, apple, pear growers, hay growers in my district. I would mention that even with trucking, some growers in my district have said that the cost for a truck to the East Coast has more than doubled in the last year. And others say that the cost to move fruit uh, just to a port to be loaded on a, a ship for export costs as much as the entire trip did uh, just about a year ago. And a lot of you know this because you're living it there's been some discussion about the Federal Maritime Commission and um, and Mr. Wells, in your testimony, you talked about how it could be doing more to alleviate the backlog at our ports. I was wondering, because sometimes it feels like they just don't have the teeth to do what they need to do, especially since we have no American shipping companies to compete. I was wondering um, what teeth you think the commission has, what more they can do to enforce rules um, and in addition to, to the Ocean Shipping Reform Act uh, of 2021, which I'm proud to support, what else can Congress do to help? Yeah, great questions. Um, frankly, I, I probably need to get back with you, Congresswoman, on that. I'm not uh, up to speed fully on the maritime and the port, uh, given my central Illinois background. But if I could get written comments back to you, I can address that question uh, at a later time. That'd be amazing. Does anybody else have comments about that? So like what, where's our leverage? What specifically can the, the Federal Maritime Commission do? Well, obviously, uh, Congressman, this is Mike Durkin. I think the, um, uh, we, the, there's a fair amount of goods that come into the U.S., obviously, from an import standpoint. Uh, our inability to, we, if you look at from a leverage standpoint, there's clear leverage. So with all the imports that are coming in, and I still think there's an opportunity with the Shipping Reform Act to make sure that uh, those, those containers that aren't going back, when you think about 70% of those containers going back empty, it just is hard to, really hard to understand how we can let that happen. So, um, and then again, when that happens and we have no control over that, and then fees are then charged to the exporting company as well, uh, therein right. lies the double thing. So if you looked at, as I mentioned earlier, from 2020, our through 2022, our freight and storage costs will have doubled as a company in two years. That's it the impact that this is having. And and those D and D fees, um, they they can't contest them, or they will be blackballed by the industry. I wanted to touch on two more um, items really quickly. One is I just wanted to talk about the school uh, food supply. Um, over the past few weeks, my office has heard from schools and parents and local officials uh, throughout my district about insufficient food stocks at schools and the in inconsistent supply of uh, school lunches. I just got uh, an email from my son's middle school the other day saying, hey, we don't have enough food. If you can just send your kids with lunches, that would be uh, so much better. It would take the pressure off. Uh, the Washington State Office of Superintendent of Public in Instruction raised similar issues and said that it could take uh, up to a year for them to get the funds from the USDA's recent $3 billion announcement regarding supply chain issues. And so I just want to state that in upcoming weeks, I'll be sending a letter to USDA with some questions about how we're going to implement this and make sure we can actually get the food to our kids. Uh, 
Last item I wanted to touch on was that I've heard a lot of hyperbole. Uh, I believe it's hyperbole as a physician about uh, vaccine mandates and how people are just going to fall apart and they won't do their jobs if you ask them to do that. We've looked at police departments. We've looked at airlines. Uh, the mandates do work. And even though all the crying wolf about how you know we thought we were we're going to have thousands of police officers in Washington state who would leave their jobs. It ended up being 35. And so I just want to kind of pull uh, the air out of that argument and say that it'd be a real bummer if uh, a truck driver carrying all those turkeys uh, to market uh, got COVID mid transit uh, and then couldn't work. And, and my colleague said, you can't just pull a trucker out of nowhere. Um, it's a really big deal to make sure that our workforce stays healthy and can do their jobs. Um, with that, I yield back. Thank you. Thank you. And now I recognize the gentleman from Alabama, Mr. Moore, for five minutes. Mr. Moore, you may need to unmute. If Mr. Moore is not ready, we'll work with him till he gets ready. And now I recognize the general lady from Minnesota, Ms. Fishback. Five minutes. Well, thank you, Mr. Chair, I appreciate the opportunity, and I and I do appreciate the conversation and um, uh, you know about an issue that is so important right now. And just had a couple of it been some. Awesome questions and discussion today, but I just had a, um, a question for Mr. Cinco. Uh, you noted that high input and commodity costs are affecting your business. Um, and we see inflation across the board in all of the commodities. Uh, farmers' cost of production is increasing alongside everyone else, and they're doing what they can to ensure that their product gets to market. Uh, much of this is due to the bottlenecks in the supply chain um, that we've been hearing about today. Um, it appears that most commodities um, have increased in costs, but the increase in wholesale sugars costs have been much less than other uh, other commodities. Um, is that is that your observation? Is that uh, yes, that is uh, correct. Uh, soybean oil has about tripled. Gluten has gone up three times what my contracted price was because of the supply lack of lack thereof. Sugar's gone up about fifteen percent. The other commodities like yeast and things like that, most of the input I'm getting is it's 10 to 12%, basically all because of freight. It's drivers that they don't can't get drivers. They want to make sure that you can get the product. So I'm hearing 10 to 15% on those commodities, but it's strictly, their argument is strictly freight. Sugar is 15 to 20. Um, it is a little higher, but it's not compared to the rest of them. Flour, oil, gluten. And, and you mentioned a couple, and I'm just wondering, which one have you seen the greatest increase in costs? Soybean oil. I have my pencil ready. So. Soybean, soy, soybean oil. Okay. Uh, gluten, gluten, during the mid part of the year, I got force majeure on a contract. They went from $0.80 cents to $2.65. Next year's contract's $1.35. Okay. So it spiked and it came back. Uh, Flour has gone with all the processing fees from 18 cents a pound to 28 cents a pound starting in January. My new contract in January will be 28 cents. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. And I 
think I'm just going to kind of open this up for everybody um, and anyone who would like to chime in. Uh, the current hours of service emergency declaration from the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration um, has allowed flexibility to ensure the disruptions in the, so the supply chain are minimized. The current declaration ends in November uh, on November 30th. Um, what are the potential impacts on the supply chain um, on everything from cattle processing to stocking grocery store shelves? If anyone wants to chime in on that one. Congresswoman, this is Greg Ferrer with the Grocers. I'll take the first stab at that. It's been an incredibly important tool. I was talking about our, our member wholesalers yesterday. It was just remarking at the flexibility that this uh, you know emergency has given them, uh, has allowed them to get orders that otherwise might have been left on a distribution center dock to the store. Um, as they manage, you know, the complete, uh, the lack of uncertainty around whether freight's coming in and when freight's going out. So it, it effectively means that they are uh, able to get product to the stores, uh, to the store shelves, and that they're able to be as efficient as they can. And of course, what's been really great about this is really has been done in a safe way. And so we would continue to ask for, uh, for the flexibility and for that to be extended for as long as possible so that we can give some certainty to those, uh, to our distributors. John. And just to add briefly to that, Congresswoman, especially from a foodstuff standpoint, uh, since we are seeing these supplier issues, these backups, we still are seeing some scant shelves at the grocery store, could potentially even uh, broaden this to uh, look at school shipments and uh, uh, deliveries to, to the schools that we're seeing, uh, not being able to, to properly uh, stock their uh, their, their meals for the children. And so I think it has been a great tool to provide flexibility for those that are hauling both food and, and from the livestock side as well. Well, thank you all very much. And unless there's someone who wanted to add something else, I, uh, Mr. Chairman, I will yield back my remaining time. And thank you very, very much. Thank you very much. And now I recognize the gentlewoman from Virginia, Ms. Spanberger, who is also the chair of the subcommittee on conservation and forestry. You're now recognized for five minutes. Thank you so very much, Mr. Chairman. And as we've heard from our witnesses today, the, the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic continue to reverberate throughout the U.S. economy, global supply chains, and our agricultural sector. Um, and if there's one thing that we have learned from this experience, it's that the U.S. supply chains lack resilience and are not adequately prepared for the kind of disruptions that occurred. Um, certainly, we, we couldn't necessarily have anticipated all of the disruptions that we've seen over the last year and a half um, because of the pandemic, but we have to ensure and recognize that disruptions in the future are possible and we have to ensure that this disruptions of the scale never occur again. So while there's really no, no silver bullet, making our agricultural and food supply chains more resilient really requires addressing a multitude of factors that have caused some of these bottlenecks. Uh, it's a priority for consumers. It's a priority uh, for those represented among our witnesses today. And, and frankly, it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a priority from a national security uh, perspective. So many of the factors that we're looking at result from decades-long trends that have been accelerated by the pandemic, including industry consolidation and changes in the composition of our workforce. Um, and there's been a fundamental, at times, mismatch between the labor needs 
uh, of an employer and the available labor. And as a member of this committee, I am keenly aware of these challenges and I've been working hard to address them. So the availability of labor across our food supply chain has long been a challenge with significant economic and national security implications. That's why I was a proud original co-sponsor uh, and proud to vote for the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, a common sense bipartisan bill that would reform our broken immigration system and ensure our agricultural sector has the workforce it needs. And I hope that the U.S. Senate will pass this bill without further delay. Um, I'm also deeply concerned about the difficulties posed by our overburdened freight infrastructure and workforce. And so to that end, I was proud to co-sponsor H.R. 4966, the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. This legislation would help reduce port congestion by giving Federal Maritime Commission the authority to levy fines against ocean carriers that refuse to take U.S. exports on return trips from port. Really, without a robust freight workforce and infrastructure, America cannot compete globally. Um, and to that end, I was proud to support the creation of an under 21 commercial driver pilot program to empower those 18 to 21 that want to enter a career in truck driving to do so. And I urge the Department of Transportation to prioritize the implementation of this program. Um, likewise, I'm also encouraged by the Senate passed Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which contains similar provisions to recruit and train truck drivers while making long term investments in our highways, bridges, rails, ports and other freight infrastructure. Um, so for all of the panelists, before I ask any additional questions, it does seem that we have a bit of a consensus across the panel. So I do want to ask each of our panelists whether they agree that Congress should prioritize passing uh, the provisions that invest in our truck driver workforce and invest in our aging infrastructure, uh, such as those contained in the Bipartisan Infrastructure and Investment and Jobs Act. And to be very clear, I'm not asking about the whole piece of legislation. I'm just asking if you think we got it right on the truck driver workforce piece and, and recognizing the need to invest in our infrastructure. Yes, ma'am. Um, there's a tremendous need for increase and in, in investment into trucking in general. Thank you. I think uh, there could be a further, we've discussed today, education, recruiting truck drivers at a younger age and uh, use the CTAE programs at the high school level to try to recruit uh, those truck drivers where they can actually get into the industry before they get 21 years old. I think there's other, certainly other things to be done. Now I've heard a lot of discussion today about things that could affect the trucking industry, but currently a thing I think that deters truckers and, uh, from getting into the industry or staying in the industry, I believe we need a moratorium on e-log such as we had back during COVID-19 uh, to mitigate some of the cost and the, the ship lanes at time delays and relax on DOT regulations for non-egregious violations. Um, I think there's certainly a possibility to allow a lot of these tolerances in the system for at least two to five years so trucking companies can afford to invest in added infrastructure. And also, as far as the port's concerned, allow more double traders on interstate and state roads to um, be able to help unclog the ports and the distribution centers that are there. And and all, all in all, decreased regulations interfere with supply chain logistics. I don't believe that any regulations to deny people from the food security. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Wells, I'll go to you. Yeah, I, in the essence of time, I would agree 100%. Uh, I think John hit on a lot of key points and, and we would agree with him. Mr. Ferrara? Agree. Mr. Durkin? 
We agree. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I have so many other questions, uh, but I'm really appreciative of your time, Mr. Chairman. I'm appreciative of this committee. And I want to just thank all of our witnesses for your work in making sure that you are bringing light and clear understanding to so many of the supply chain issues that our country is facing. Uh, certainly, I think you have a commitment from so many of our, our agriculture committee members uh, to continue working on this issue, addressing the bottlenecks, addressing the reforms that need to occur. And again, I just thank you for your time and your testimony today. Thank you, Mr. Van Berger. And now I recognize the gentleman from Alabama, Mr. Moore, for five minutes. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Can you hear me okay now? Yes, I can. Okay. Go Sorry right ahead. We, we were having some issues here in the office, but I think we've got them worked out. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Wells, I want to ask a question real quick. Um, I'd like for you to elaborate a little bit on your answers you gave to Congressman Bacon. And on one of the points you made in, in your testimony regarding the use of inland waterways, in my home state of Alabama, we're, we're fortunate to have over 1,200 miles of inland waterways, which we use to transport approximately 1.5 billion in freight every year and support about 200,000 jobs in that region. In your testimony, you described a need for extensive maintenance and modernization of our locks and dams right alongside the need to address congestion in our ports. Can you go into a little more detail regarding the need for strategic investment in these areas and what improvements should we prioritize to alleviate future challenges to our supply chain. Sure. Uh, well, the, uh, the port congestion, I think, speaks for itself. Uh, I think we've all seen pictures of containers stacked uh, at, at ports. Regarding in, the inland waterway uh, system, uh, Gromark would move roughly 1,500 barges a year uh, on the inland waterway system, Mississippi, Ohio, uh, Illinois predominantly. Um, as I stated earlier, the need for um, main, regular maintenance. Uh, many of these locks and dams were built in the 20s and 30s with a 50-year useful life. They've exceeded that, obviously, today. They're at real risk, many of them, of, of you know, failing on us. And so uh, failure of that lock and dam system, any one of those would be uh, potentially catastrophic to the movement of goods uh, up and down that river from grain to fertilizers to, you know, coal or other products. Um, when toes come up, um, they have to be broken uh, if they're less than 1,200 foot uh, locks. And so that just takes time. They have to disassemble them, move, push them through, get the other half, push them through, reassemble them. And so, um, you know, the, the need for repair and replacement uh, is high and we're at great risk of, of real impact, further impact to the supply chain. Thank you, Mr. Wells. And, and I might add, and you guys find this probably unusual, but I actually have my CDLs and have a company. And so I've been having a hard time finding drivers. It's, it's, it's across the board out there. And, you know, I, it's interesting. I talk to my superintendent all the time. We actually put out advertisements to interview. And out of 10, you might get maybe six that answer. And then one that shows up for the interview. And, and then the rate that they want to, to, to receive and, and salary almost puts the freight cost, you know, it, it, we just can't adjust that quickly in this part of the world. But this isn't really a question, but I think it's worth mentioning. State governments ha have had a hand in addressing this issue for some period of time. And Congressman Cloud mentioned during his time, at the federal level, we can do what we can. But when states like California are passing laws that cover thousands of independent drivers and contractors with red tape, they only add to the problem in our supply chain. I actually had a call with a friend of mine this morning as the CDL driver and they're, they moved from California, these independents, because of some of the requirements. It just it didn't make sense for them to work in California. So there's some things we can do, and, and I hope we'll continue to pursue reducing government and regulations to increase uh, 
uh, decreased cost, I should say. So with that, Mr. Chairman, I'm, I got a little time left, but I'll just yield back and I appreciate the witnesses for their time today. Thank you very much. And now I recognize the gentleman from Florida, Mr. Lawson. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, and, and welcome other uh, members to the committee. Uh, Mr. Sanson, uh, uh, you spoke about the importance of improving communication between supply chain suppliers to avoid a supply chain breakdown and provide Congress and federal regulators supply chain uh, a better understanding of how to provide effective and meaningful relief. And the risk of not sounding like a broken record, if possible, could you tell us again what your ideal communication system will look like and what steps should be taken by Congress to incentivize the communication network? So briefly, thank you, Congressman. Uh, briefly, I just want to go back to uh, the breakdown, uh, March 2020, of, of, uh, of our COVID uh, pandemic. The communication that we were able to establish along the supply chain, everyone from growers through processors into the uh, grocery or the manufacturing side had the same goal in mind. And so the communication once established was fruitful. We were able to go through and have a good conversation, figure out how to make things more efficient moving forward and, and, and minimize or eliminate food waste. Now, the communication that we have currently in our food supply breakdown doesn't have everybody uh, looking towards that same direction. And I think I had mentioned this earlier today, but the fact that the uh, ocean liners have a certain agenda of what they want to accomplish, the ports have their own issues that they're dealing with, and then the carriers all the way to the warehouses. And so I think the communication is extraordinarily important to get everybody on that same page. And I think some things like the Shipping Act will assist in pushing the carriers uh, in that direction. I think being able to get the warehouses, uh, if the port's operating 24-7, the warehouses need to operate 24-7, or else you're going to run into those constant bottleneck issues. So I think in order for us to actually work together and fix this issue on a communication side, uh, everybody's got to be speaking towards the same direction. And I don't think we're getting, getting that right now. Okay, did anyone else uh, care to comment on that? If not, I, I go to my next question. Uh, you know, clearly, and here in most of the discussion today, uh, we're talking about the situation that we have with truckers and truck drivers and things that can be recommended. Here in Tallahassee, the community college uh, has set up a program to train uh, truck drivers, which I think is very significant. But I hope that someone on the panel can tell me in their perspective what they think have happened. Because when I calculate the stimulus dollars uh, since March uh, of last year that have been sent out, that might come up to as much as $3,600 or $4,000. What do you think have caused the problem? Because that's not enough money for them to survive. For all, so many of them to leave the industry. And, and this is one of the things that I have uh, asked into the panel, uh, because there got to be something that is going on other than the amount of money that they've gotten from stimulus dollars uh, for their families. Because I know, for example, that I had uh, a young man that I coached when I was coaching basketball, and he's still a truck driver, and I had the opportunity to talk to him. Uh, and, and, and 
but I couldn't get a clear picture. And before my time has run out, I would like to see what can I hear from the panel. I guess from a trucking standpoint, uh, it's it's been difficult for us to pinpoint why uh, we're not seeing more interest. We're getting uh, carriers that are paying for the training itself. We're getting uh, grant money, state grant money that uh, is able to provide uh, for these uh, drivers going through uh, these different college uh uh, programs. Uh, we're getting the younger uh, high school education in there as well. And we're still not quite sure. There are other alternative careers out there that have a similar uh, path and similar pay structure. And so that's one thing that we see as competing with what we're trying to do here. But it's been difficult to, to really pinpoint that. Congressman, the only other thing I would add is I think that a lot of people are jumping around. Uh, you can go get paid $18 an hour to make a burrito right now. Um, and mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people who uh, are, are jumping around. They may, um, you know, not be working this week. They can pick up uh, gig jobs doing Uber or, or, or um, DoorDash or whatever it is. There's just a lot of opportunities out there. We need to help people focus on careers so we can get them uh, focused on the long term. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Thank you very much. And now I recognize the gentleman from California, Mr. LaMafa, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for having this uh, key meeting at a key time here on uh, our supply chain and what that means for all American consumers. Um, covered a lot of good info today. I, I think uh, we still really need to drill right down to what is it we can do that would be the most effective, most immediate uh, relief for what's going on at the ports and the, the whole the whole chain of, of getting these products out and that bottleneck done and getting things to the store shelves, whether you're talking about in the context of Christmas or just in the general terms of uh, keeping um, food on the shelf and perishables from going bad, uh, waiting waiting to go, whether it's uh, for export or you know when you're talking trucking, just in general around the country. So, you know, some of the things we talked about is uh, or are thinking about too is that. As a California member, we deal with things uh, to an extra degree. Uh, we have AB5, which was attempted to be passed here, known as the PRO Act, which basically is uh, really zapped owner-operators of trucks. You have the California Air Resources Board uh, phasing out trucks that are older than 2011 engines or 2010 model trucks. Uh, the DMV has a two-month backlog, at least, on getting people... Uh, uh, truck drivers licensed. Uh, we have, uh, you know, what was mentioned a couple times, I think most recently by Ms. Spanberger on getting more people that are the age, the tw age 21 requirement, get them down to that 18, age 18 requirement so they can do inter interstate trucking. The hours of service, you know, we need some flexibility on that. We need to have whatever we can do at the federal level and our governors and our state level folks look at some of these issues and say, can we at least put a variance on this uh, for for a period of time to get caught up, you know, weight limits on trucks. Can we put a, put a variance on that for a while to uh, um, deal with just getting through the backlog? Because we're all being harmed by what's going on. It's it's, it's really harming our economy and and, and um, the the people that produce these products. And we're going to see, as has been talked about earlier in the committee, a shift of where these products are going to come from. So let me talk to Mr. Durkin about this. Um, you know, you, you spoke earlier about uh, your um, your markets, basically, and 
people will shift to buying things from EU or from uh, New Zealand, Australia, wherever, whoever can supply this. Plus, please emphasize that a little bit for this committee. Yeah. There's three primary uh, dairy exporting countries. Uh, it's ourselves, U.S., uh, the European Union, and New Zealand. And uh, I gave an example in my testimony where we've had, the, again, the one customer where that actually is incurring significant air freight charges because they can't get, get to on a boat. And uh, there's, there's an expectation on there and that we pay for that, which we'll be unable to do. Um, we're trying to do the best we can, can and, and with, some, with some pricing is there to kind of mitigate that, but uh, the costs are significant. What the most concerning thing over the long term is the loss of that customer. Um, and again, going to the European Union, as they had indicated, and this will not be the first, it'll just be the start um, of, uh, of this, and that's my concern on this. So, What's the loss of that customer actually mean to an American consumer, do you think? The loss of that is obviously millions of dollars in product that we were able to come back, but now what's going to happen from an American consumer standpoint it's going to increase supply in the United States, per se, but it's going to drive pricing down to make it very volatile. And what you're going to see is actually lower milk prices for the dairy farmer. That's also our concern because the, the big part of growth for dairies is dairy farmers is actually going to be exports. So the dairy farmer won't be around very long at that rate. That's a, it's a concern on our end for the viability of the dairy farmer. When we're talking about the issues at the ports, once again, you, you mentioned earlier that the uh, the, the cost of a freight chainer, I think, was $5,500 just to use that container to fill the, with product. But things that are out of your control, the detention and demurrage fee, you said, was up to $20,000, right? That's correct. And that's something you don't control, right? That is not out of our control. Is, is that something you even anticipate until it happens? We cannot, you, you, until it rolls, until you get the actual invoice, you, you, don't, you don't know that you're actually encouraging those charges. And we've actually had to hire temporary people to actually go and research those charges and to try to go back at the carriers uh, to, try to, get, to try to get rid of that. But so this it's is, been a challenge. This is a lot like surprise medical billing, really. You get a surprise bill on your demurrage. And, That's a good analogy. Yeah, okay. So does it, do you really feel like it's your, it's your fault for that, or is it just is it's more out of your hands with the, the shipping and the loading and all that, isn't it? And absolutely not our, not our fault, because we have, the, uh, we have the goods on time at the port ready to go. Um, as we've talked about, there's challenges on getting uh, containers as well as chassis there, but uh, we've worked very hard to be able to do that. You mentioned, and, too, that you, was it 70% of ships leave the U.S.? with empty containers or in some cases no containers because they've left them on the dock because they're in a hurry to get back? Correct. Um, has the 24-7 port order helped to change that situation any? The 24-7 port order was a suggestion for the ports to work towards that. Suggestion. Suggestion. So it's yeah. not in place yet. Correct. It's not in place yet. In there, I think the reality of this is I know they have a union negotiation, they labor negotiations coming up in the springtime. And they'll have to get probably work through that. They'll have to hire people and obviously train people. In our mind, this is six to 12 months out at best. If the gentleman's my, time My is time's this. out, but uh, I would hope the panel in other questions, would you emphasize what things we could be fixing right now to get results right now in, in other questions? Thank you. Yep. Yes. And uh, if you could provide those in writings back to him. We'd appreciate it. Thank yep. you. And now the general lady from Louisiana, Ms. Letlow, recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the witnesses for your time and testimony here today to discuss the important issues our agriculture industry is facing in the food supply chain. 
As I travel throughout the 5th District and the state, I continue to hear the many concerns of our farmers, ranchers, and agriculture retailers. A common theme, one that has also been highlighted throughout this hearing, is the ongoing and constraining labor shortage, not only with domestic workers, but within the H2 seasonal workforce as well. Specifically, one crawfish peeling plant in Louisiana applied for 190 H2B workers, but were ultimately denied because the cap was met within the first few days of implementing the six month application period. While this is not an unknown circumstance in recent years, the shortage of seasonal workers for agriculture processing is catastrophic for our farmers that rely on these operations to process their perishable harvested crops. Compounding this issue, if our employers can't find domestic workers to fill jobs, then we need these seasonal workforce programs to work for our agriculture industry in a sufficient and efficient manner. In addition to labor, it's also essential that our farmers are equipped with the tools and machinery necessary to have a successful planting season and harvest. From fertilizers to herbicides, as well as parts for farm equipment, the farming community has experienced an increase in prices, delays on delivery, and lack of availability. All this to say, we're not just looking at one impactful challenge. While these supply chain issues affect our farmers, they also affect the consumers and the greater U.S. economy. At the end of the day, this is a national security issue and one we should not take lightly. I've heard from many growers in my district who are troubled by shortages of major herbicides used on tens of millions of acres. Several of these chemistries have seen prices nearly double in recent months. Many are also concerned with reports that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is considering a label changes ahead of the next growing season that could pull the rug right out from under farmers. If growers order seed and chemistry expecting certain use conditions and because of EPA label change, changes, now have an entirely different product registration to work with, it might not meet their needs. Many could have to entirely switch to new seed and chemistry varieties. Mr. Wells, from the retailer perspective, how is the herbicide and seed market currently and what impact might it have if EPA does make a significant label change ahead, ahead of the 2022 growing season? Yeah, I, I would characterize the herbicide uh, industry specifically with a couple of key actives, glyphosate and glufosinate as being uh, very disrupted right now. Um, a lot of that production, is, as has been discussed, comes from China. We have some domestic production actually in Louisiana. Uh, but, but those farm plans are being made today. Um, and any disruption, you sell a lot of herbicide and seed systems. And so you buy the seed, the herbicide uh, is, is used along with it. And so disruptions in one side of the supply chain directly impact the other side of the supply chain. One of our concerns is if there's a disruption from an EPA ruling of some type um, that takes a tool away from us, is there another tool that's effective against the weeds or whatever we're trying to control uh, with the first? Thank you so much, Mr. Wells. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you very much. And now we have reached the conclusion of this hearing. I can't, oh, is there one other? I'm sorry. The gentlelady from Florida. My apologies. Oh, forgive me, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> you know, <laughs> my deepest apologies to you, Mrs. Carmack. You are now recognized for five minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, thank you to all the witnesses for appearing here today for this most important topic. Uh, I, I'm a little...
shocked that 11 months in, we've been dealing with these issues and we're just now getting to them, but nevertheless, very excited to have these conversations. So I'm gonna jump right in. Mr. Ferreira, your testimony speaks to the government helping your member stores in attracting talent. As you know, there are a myriad of workforce development programs in existence, including those that help very specific populations, i.e. SNAP recipients, uh, homeless veterans, et cetera. If you held the pen to recalibrate these programs, how would you go about doing so? You know, Congressman, we actually just held a, uh, a, a seminar with some of our members through our foundation uh, to uh, attract uh, folks with disabilities into our industry, and it was very well attended. I think the most important thing is we need to give uh, our grocers and our, our wholesale distributors as well a lot of tools in the toolbox because every community is different and their needs are different. Uh, and so to make sure that we have access to uh, as many of these different programs and resources and that they're easy to use and easy to implement, I think that's other thing that's very important. Um, I think that could go a long way to, to, to uh, making a dent in, in the uh, challenges we're facing today. I appreciate that. And, and we are very excited to work on ways that we can uh, put more tools in the toolbox. And, you know, throughout the year, I have put forward measures to move funding away from the more handout based uh, SNAP programs and towards workforce development programs. However, what we've seen with the majority in this administration, and they've made it very abundantly clear that its policy towards SNAP uh, recently that was highlighted by the fly-by-night thrifty food plan update with with no data backing uh that they were perfectly content with paying americans to stay home and quite frankly that's very frustrating um disincentivizing americans from working i was called cruel and heartless in this committee for suggesting that we work to find ways to mobilize and incentivize and encourage americans to get back to work and uh, that's been very frustrating, especially when we have so many that are begging, um, begging for uh, help and ways that we can we can get people back on their feet. So um, I'm going to shift a little bit here and uh, hit something that's very close to home for me. Mr. Wells, you mentioned in your testimony the need for free and fair trade of agricultural products, equipment, crop inputs that are essential to supply chain resiliency. I share your concern here greatly because most recently, the International Trade Commission had considered restricting the import of urea ammonium, ammonium nitrate solutions, which is a critical input uh, for many of our producers. Now, what would the impact be if the International Trade Commission under this administration bans the import of these nitrate solutions or other imported inputs? Can our domestic production under this administration with the increased red tape and regulatory environment realistically pick up the shortfall in a way that does not impact our producers and consumers on either end of the supply chain? Yeah, well, obviously I wouldn't want to speculate regarding the ongoing investigation. I think that was just filed not long ago. Um, I'm doubtful there'll be a ban on the product, um, perhaps duties, um, we've had we've had one other uh, uh, situation come through. Um, you know, currently U.S. producers they've really upgraded their capacity over the last decade. There's been significant investment in the nitrogen uh, space. Um, it all depends on what products they want to produce and what ratios. But technically, um, there is enough production to meet the U.S. UAN demand, the urea ammonium nitrate demand. I think 
the biggest concern of the retailers that I talk to is the ability to get the product shipped where they need to be, and particularly on the coast, the West Coast and East Coast, and what the cost of doing so uh, might be. Um, you know, the sense is it's it's probably less costly to come from um, offshore destinations. Um, time will tell. We'll see. But I, I think the big concern, again, is just, you know, the shipping conditions of getting the product in the right place at the right time. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, and um, we'll be continuing to monitor this. And um, we do have great concerns about the regulatory environment and how that's going to impact domestic production. And obviously, this is an active investigations uh, invest, investigation. Um, before my time expires, I do want to associate myself with uh, Representative Fishbox comments. Um, Mr. Cinco, um, you had made um, some, some statements about high sugar prices, et cetera. And I would just like to say, I need to emphasize the importance of the domestic production of our sugar industry. It is critical. We cannot rely on foreign imports. And so I'd like to associate myself with Representative Fishbox comments. And Mr. Chairman, with that, I yield back. Thank you, Ms. Carmack. Uh, and now this reaches the end of our discussion here. The points that you all have made have been illuminating, and it's opened our eyes to much of what we were only dimly aware getting into this. But we gotta have two trains running here, gentlemen. I think that that would be the conclusion of what we've heard. Two trains running we need. We need a long train running and we need a short train running. We can discuss the recruitment, working with the 18 year olds, getting young people involved long term. What we've got to be concerned about now though, gentlemen, is how and where we can get commercial licensed drivers in the trucks now. And so in my concluding uh, statement, I wanna ask this question to you. How can we do that? Now, I've had an uncle who was a truck driver, and I can tell you that truck drivers are very unique individuals. It takes a special kind of person to do this task. But they are like a brotherhood, a fraternity. And I, I, I want to ask, um, perhaps, Mr. Uh, Sampson, I think you are with the trucking. Is it possible that we can work with the Teamsters? We got to bring the Teamsters are the unions for the truck drivers. What role is there? If there are truck drivers out there already with the license that perhaps are in between jobs or they left, but now that we have this crisis here, and let us call it what it is, I thought 15,000, but you've informed me 80,000 commercial drivers short We've got to respond to this now. What about our military? There are veterans who have experience. 
with long haulers. Oh, my Lord, if you know what uh, our military and our soldiers do, they have the talent, they have the experience of driving these huge vehicles, hydraulics, 18-wheelers that move tanks and artilleries on the battlefield. The other thing is so many of our young people, fine, but they're accustomed to uh, the automatic transmission. Man, when you get into drug driving, it takes a special kind of training, the gear shifting, the movements. So is there a way we can reach out to veterans organizations, find individuals that may be able to help us in the short time. This is an immediate crisis. Finally, we can do without a lot of things, but gentlemen, we cannot do without food. And if there is anything that we never need a shortage of in supplying to the American people is food. So tell me, is there a way we can reach out, involve our military, involve our Teamsters who know drivers who may have left can assist us in locating them. We need immediacy here. This is the way we make sure that we never have a food shortage. And then we've got to do the recruiting. We've got the young people coming in, but we need drivers now. Can you assist us here? We're coming up with a way we have the Labor Department, we have federal, we have the Congress of the United States in our hands where we can appropriate necessary emergency money to use as an enticement, as a reward, as a bonus for those who may come out of retirement, who are young but taken early. Our Teamsters know who these people are. I work with Teamsters. It's a brotherhood, and they call it that. They could be helpful. Our veterans who fought in the wars, they would be helpful. There are people out there who will come and help us in our moment of need. We need to identify these sources and put us here in Congress to work to provide whatever you need to get these commercial licensed drivers into these trucks so we will never face a food shortage in this country and make sure we are capable of assisting so that there's never a food shortage anywhere in the world. Food is our most important industry. I say that all the time because there are a lot of things, as I said, we can deal with, but we can't deal without food. You talk about pressures, you talk about turmoil, that would bring it. 
So we have put our Paul Revere hats on here today. We've sounded the alarm. Before I close, could you respond to that? Have any motions been to that? I can assist you with that. I've worked with the unions, the Teamsters. They're ready to work with us. I have worked with veterans organizations over the years. They will be ready to help us. They have the experience. Many of them already have the lights, the commercials, driver license. What can we do to engage them to come help their nation at a time when we need help the most? I, that's extraordinarily important, and, and, and I think we need to look at all options, like you said. I mean, all options on the table. From a military perspective, we've been engaged, understanding that they have that background of the large machinery, trying to streamline their ability to get into the industry. And I believe we have been successful at that, uh, but there's a lot more that can be done. And I think, uh, you know, as you mentioned, all options are on the table crisis mode and to be able to go out and recruit and bring those in from a diverse array of, of different areas around the U.S. Uh, and internationally. But uh, uh, it's, it's extraordinarily important. It's something that we focus on on a daily basis and, and realize the importance of it. And have you been in touch with the Teamsters? I believe we have, yes. And, and yes. we have members that work through uh, the, the union side as well. and so Good. Correct. Good. Well, please, if there's anything that this committee and us here in Congress they can do to help your forward progress, we're getting a hold of people who can come and help us now. Please call on me to help you. Call on our committee and the Congress of the United States. We cannot, we must not, and we will not ever have a food shortage in our nation. All we have to do is go to work and prepare for the storm before the hurricane is raging. With that, under the rules of the, the committee, the record of today's hearing will remain open for 10 calendar days to receive additional material and supplementary written responses from the witnesses to any question posed by a member. Thank you. God bless you. This meeting is adjourned.